This book is dedicated to Patty Aubrey, my business partner, president of my companies, and for 25 years, my sounding board, confidant, and closest friend. From those early days, typing the first chicken soup for the soul stories, to building a hugely successful company that has expanded my impact worldwide, Patty has helped guide my career, advanced these teachings, and held a vision of my work that is bigger and bolder than anything I could have dreamed myself. Words cannot express my gratitude for your endless energy, selfless focus, and lifelong dedication to this work. You are a treasure. Life is like a combination lock. Your job is to find the right numbers in the right order, so you can have anything you want. Brian Tracy If we did all the things we are capable of doing, we would literally astound ourselves. Thomas A. Edison Forward. A decade ago, Janet Switzer and I envisioned a time when the success principles would be read in dozens of languages and followed in more than 100 countries, a time when individuals from every walk of life and groups of every kind would use it as a guidebook for dreaming bigger dreams, planning bigger outcomes, taking action in a bigger way, and enjoying the kind of expanded, abundant lifestyle that, for them, never seemed possible before. We envisioned a time when educators, corporate managers, and small group leaders would take up our challenge to advance the message of the success principles by training others in these human potential basics, time when we could look back with pride at the millions of lives that had been touched by the universal message and proven principles in this book. I'm happy to say that time is now. Over the past 10 years, not only has the success principle spread to 108 countries in 30 languages, but the feedback and success stories we've received in return have been gratifying and humbling. Men, women, teens, students, athletes, entrepreneurs, stay-at-home parents, rising corporate stars, and other achievers have become dedicated to creating lives of abundance, joy, professional fulfillment, and personal accomplishment. They are proof positive that these principles work, if you work the principles. Through countless stories and heartwarming reports, I've watched this phenomenon unfold, as readers moved beyond today's culture of resignation and mediocrity to create the exciting, compelling life of their dreams. They have overcome their own limitations, whether physical challenges, economic hardship, past failures, or simply their own limiting beliefs— to achieve astounding success. At one time, perhaps just like you, they wondered how a single book could change their lives. Doug Whittle, a builder from Kamloops, British Columbia, Canada, doubled his income within a year of applying what he learned, then doubled it again 12 months later. He began enjoying substantially more free time and built four magnificent homes so he and his family could spend summers and winters in temperate climates. Days before talking to Doug, we heard from Miriam Laundrie, a mom who dreamed of bringing self-esteem concepts to more than 100,000 children, changing lives and communities around the globe. Not only did she surpass her goal in less than a year, she attained a Guinness World Records title for her accomplishment. Sean Gallagher, a successful Irish entrepreneur, appeared for three seasons on the hit television show Dragon's Den, Shark Tank in the U.S., and later fulfilled his most audacious goal when he stood for election to become the President of Ireland. 
He's now a highly sought-after speaker and writer, helping to inform and inspire the next generation of Irish business leaders. Justin Bendel, an aspiring orchestral musician, used the success principles to visualize playing at a world-class concert hall whose picture he'd had for years. Though he didn't know the name of the concert hall in the photo, he pasted it to his vision board anyway. Soon after, he received a fully paid scholarship to pursue graduate studies in music, and within his first year of grad school, was chosen to play with the university orchestra at Carnegie Hall in New York, the concert hall in the photograph he had pasted on his vision board. Using Principle 24, Exceed Expectations 25-year-old Canadian franchisee Natalie Peace built one of her juice bar locations to record revenues, then sold it for the highest amount ever received for that franchise. She since earned her MBA and now, among other things, teaches business administration classes to fourth-year university students, recommending the success principles as a powerful textbook for future entrepreneurs. After one of my readers, a successful Malaysian businessman, was incarcerated under extremely harsh conditions in China. His wife convinced the guards to pass along his tattered, dog-eared, and marked-up copy of the success principles so he could stay motivated during his 20-month ordeal. He not only re-rented hundreds of times, but also used it to transform himself into an even more motivated, excited, and fearless person who, since his release, has launched a successful information technology business, started two restaurants, and acquired a portfolio of international properties with a group of real estate investors. Pavel Popiolik, Czech Republic's leading importer of computer equipment with a $600 million business to manage, used what he learned in the success principles to balance his life and work, making time for his true passion, competitive cycling. So far, he's won the Val Duran UCI World Cycling Tour race in the Pyrenees, qualified for the World Masters Cycling Championship, and been profiled in Men's Health magazine. Of course, beyond business success and professional accomplishment are those readers whose entire lives have changed because they implemented the principles in this book. Heather O'Brien Walker, who sustained a devastating brain injury in a warehouse accident at work, first heard the success principles from her hospital bed as her fiancé read them aloud during Heather's 30 days of rehabilitation. Though she couldn't walk or talk or even function normally, she began to visualize her wedding day and made walking down the aisle her breakthrough goal. The process of learning to walk again was grueling. But today, Heather has not only recovered, but she also shares her message of overcoming adversity through speaking engagements and her book, Don't Give Up, Get Up. Akshay Nanavati, an ex-Marine who was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder upon his return from Iraq, is using the principles to beat the condition. His dream? To run across every country in the world, border to border, over the next 25 years, not only as a way to inspire others, but also to give himself the inspiration to get up and take action every day. And Louis Pugh of Great Britain is the only person to have completed a long-distance swim in every ocean of the world. Over a period of 27 years, he has pioneered swims in the most hostile waters on Earth, including the Antarctic, the North Pole, and the Himalayas, and developed an understanding of the beauty and fragility of life and its many ecosystems.
Millions have viewed his talks at TED Global, and he campaigns tirelessly for the creation of marine protected areas and changes to the legal framework governing oceans. In 2013, the United Nations appointed the maritime lawyer as patron of the oceans. And yes, he's a success principles reader, too. With stories like these, and thousands more that have poured in, when it came time to prepare the 10th anniversary edition of the Success Principles, I quickly realized that I could produce an entire companion book filled with just the inspiring and fascinating stories we've received from readers over the last decade. Countless others have used what they learned to become best-selling authors, start businesses, purchase investment properties, get married, lose weight, achieve professional honors, get job promotions, travel the world, get out of debt raise amazing kids, and so much more. But while many of these readers knew exactly what they wanted to achieve when they picked up their copy of The Success Principles, many more didn't. For some readers, achievement seemed so far away that their only want was for life to simply get better. Forrest Willett was one of those readers. At 31 years old, Forrest's life was right on track. He owned three homes, and seven businesses. He'd been married for seven years to a beautiful woman and had a two-year-old son. He was on top of the world. That is, until his world turned upside down. Literally. He was in an automobile accident that threw his car end over end three times, leaving him with a catastrophic brain injury. Suddenly, Forrest found himself incapable of doing even the slightest tasks— with his beautiful wife now teaching him to brush his teeth and comb his hair. Although he knew he was lucky to be alive, he began to spiral faster and faster into a deep pit of depression, anger, and despair. In the beginning, like a stroke survivor, he had difficulty conversing on even the most basic level. His humiliation rendered him housebound, and soon fatigue and apathy dominated his existence. For hours, Forrest lay on the sofa, sleeping or watching television. The doctors, his speech therapist, his occupational therapist, his physical therapist, essentially all of the experts, told him that returning to a productive life with the promise of success wasn't possible. So Forrest gave up all hope of ever having a normal existence, let alone a life that fulfilled his dreams. Then one day, as he lay in bed, Numbly surfing the TV channels, the words, If you want to get from where you are to where you want to be, caught his attention. Forrest sat up enough to focus on what the news anchor was saying. Jack Canfield was coming up next to discuss his book, The Success Principles. With the smallest spark of hope ignited, Forrest bought the book that they were talking about, the first edition of The Success Principles, which was over 400 pages. At the time, Forrest was just learning to read his son's books, a 35-year-old man reading books for a kindergartner. His speech therapist thought a 400-page book was being overly ambitious. But Forrest was more than ready to get from where he was to where he wanted to be. And so, he began his journey. In the beginning, reading even a single page was slow and laborious. Though he was motivated, Forrest began to wonder if his therapist had been right. Maybe he was being overly ambitious. Then, several months after starting to work his way through the success principles, and a full five years after the accident, he got his biggest wake-up call. At his son Hunter's seventh birthday party, Forrest was out in the yard with a boy and a group of his friends, 
as Hunter opened his presence. Picking a round-shaped package from the pile, Hunter ripped the wrapping paper off to reveal a baseball. Smiling with delight, he immediately threw it at the ground. Naturally, the ball landed with a thud and rolled a couple of feet into the dirt. Hunter picked it up and hurled it at the ground again, where it once more rolled away from him. Before he could try again, the friend who had given him the baseball shouted, Hunter, baseballs don't bounce. In that moment, Forrest was thunderstruck as the impact of his absence hit him like a ton of bricks. How could his son know about such things? They had never thrown a baseball together. Forrest realized he had spent more time with his negative thoughts than with his own son, essentially abandoning him, as well as his wife. He knew that if he didn't take charge of his life, it would end up in pieces. He'd find himself divorced, homeless, or worse. The spark inside him turned into a blaze. He went back to the first of the success principles, take 100% responsibility for your life, and tackled it in earnest. In his case, taking 100% responsibility for his life meant he had to stop the negative self-talk. No more poor forest. And why did this happen to me? Without that constant negative soundtrack to distract him, Forrest could see that he hadn't been an active participant in his own rehabilitation. He had been letting his physical therapist stretch him, then wondered why he wasn't getting stronger. He'd sat there passively listening while his speech therapist read to him, then complained that his reading skills weren't getting any better. Now Forrest started to believe that his life could be different, that he could make it different. And that's when things really started to change. Almost immediately, his self-awareness began to grow. Things that had gone over his head for so long finally registered. Where were all his friends? The answer was as painful as it was clear. He'd abandoned them, in the same way he'd abandoned his family. Everyone had stopped calling long ago, pushed away by Forrest's negativity, and he'd been too self-absorbed to care. Just noticing these things was a success in itself, Forrest reminded himself. He was making progress. Next, he decided to give up blaming and complaining. Not an easy task. It had become so habitual that Forrest didn't even realize he was doing it. So he asked the people around him to help him become aware when he slipped back into his old ways. In fact, his wife and therapists had a sign. If Forrest began to blame or complain, they let him know by pulling on their ear. When he saw that, he'd stop whatever he was saying in mid-sentence, take a deep breath, and consider his next words more carefully. Not that speaking, positively or negatively, was easy for him. Forrest still hadn't fully regained his speech faculties, and sometimes he was unable to find the words he needed, or he stuttered. Because of this, he didn't want to go to the grocery store or post office in case he ran into someone he knew. To counter this, he focused on Principle 22. Practice Persistence Each day he read the success principles for 20 minutes and practiced stepping out of his comfort zone. Day after day, he practiced a little more and went a little further. One of his steps out of his comfort zone took him to a local coffee shop. For years, Forrest had put his head down and walked past the coffee shop, keeping his eyes glued to the cement. But this day, he walked in, reminding himself of Principle 15. Experience your fear and take action anyway. Unfortunately, he was met right away by his worst fear, 
an old acquaintance recognized him and called out. Although he was cringing with embarrassment inside, Forrest stayed calm and walked over and sat down. He explained as best he could what had been happening. He was amazed to find it actually felt good to stand up for himself. In the coming days, Forrest tried this with others, and with time, talking got easier. He discovered there were people around him who were willing to support him, especially now that Forrest was willing to support himself. He also saw that he wasn't alone in dealing with life's fears and challenges. Everyone he talked to seemed to have struggles and pain of their own. This insight helped him to overcome the shame he'd been carrying for so long. As time passed, he could hardly believe the new successes he was having. Within a year of applying the principles, Forrest was doing all of the things the doctors had said he'd never do again. He returned to school. He got off all medications, both for pain and depression. He started volunteering. He started turning every negative into a positive. And he's been doing that ever since. Today, it's hard to believe there was a time not that long ago that Forrest couldn't speak fluently, nor read or write very well. But he turned that around so completely that he wrote a book about his experiences. As a result, he gets almost daily requests to share his story in front of audiences. And while he never would have believed it possible during the dark days, today he loves public speaking and believes he's found the work he was meant to do. He's thrilled to travel and speak to groups around the world. Reading the success principles also shifted Forrest's thinking about success in general. Before the accident, success, to him, meant more money and more things. A bigger house, a bigger boat, opening more businesses, owning more stuff. After the accident, he'd given up on ever attaining any success, however you define it. Today, thanks to the success principles, he's learned the profound truth that having all the stuff in the world doesn't mean anything if you're not truly living, which Forrest now knows means giving and receiving love. If currency were counted in friends and love, Forrest would be the richest man in the world. While Forrest Willett used the success principles to define and achieve success for himself, how you define success is solely in your power. For you, success might be a substantial income, effortless financial reward, and the luxuries of a high net worth lifestyle. It may be professional recognition or achievement in your hobby or philanthropic endeavors. It may be healthy, happy, and engaged children, or a family life that provides day-after-day -day enjoyment and bliss. Or it may be entrance into the world stage for a project or subject matter you are passionate about. Whatever your definition of success, rest assured that you can hold in your hands the roadmap to achieving it. Even when you're skeptical, the principles always work. One of my favorite stories over the last ten years is from a reader in the Philippines who at first was skeptical, but who committed to applying the principles anyway for just one year. On the last stop of a six-city Asian tour conducting success principles workshops, a young man named John Kaloub approached me at a book signing in Manila's largest shopping mall. He was writing a newspaper column about successful people for the biggest newspaper in the Philippines and asked me for an interview. At the end of a very engaging hour, I told him that he was a great interviewer and asked how long he had been doing it. With a sense of pride, he replied that I was his very first interviewee. He went on to say that, up until recently, he and two partners had owned and operated three successful restaurants, 
but that bickering between the partners had eventually led to the failure of the business. John was now homeless, broke, and sleeping on couches in his friends' apartments. He had taken public transportation to the book signing because he no longer owned a car. And all the money he had in the world was the three dollars cash left in his pocket. When I heard this, and because I liked John, I bought him a copy of the Success Principles from the bookstore and offered him a free seat in the next day's workshop. Giving him twenty dollars to buy some food, I extracted a promise that, if he liked it, he would write a feature article about the workshop. Two and a half years later, I returned to Manila to conduct another workshop. As I was getting ready to begin, I noticed a well-dressed man in a blue blazer and gold Doc Martin shoes, followed by an entourage of ten people, all wearing the same polo shirt with a bright logo on it. I was curious, so I walked over to the group and, to my surprise and delight, the man in the blue blazer was John Kaloub. He told me that he had become one of the most successful businessmen in Manila. When John related the story of how he'd accomplished his success, I was so moved that I asked John to share it, in his own words. Sitting in the seminar with my arms crossed tightly across my chest, I listened carefully as Jack Canfield described his principles for success. At first I was very skeptical. He had crazy ideas, like cutting out pictures, pasting them on a board and looking at it every day, then feeling as though you already had what you wanted. My rational mind said, What a joke! Like looking at some pictures is going to help me get what I want? At one point, Jack even talked about Dr. Masaru Emoto's famous experiment with water crystals and showed pictures of how water can be affected by thoughts, words, and feelings. Though I was intrigued, I still wasn't convinced. With my mind full of doubts and questions, I returned home from the seminar and thought more about what Jack had shared. It soon dawned on me. Jack was a very, very successful guy who would use these principles. And here I was totally broke. Who would you listen to? I asked myself. Besides, I had lost everything. I had nothing else to lose. I decided to read the book he had given me and diligently follow the principles for one year. Every week I worked with a different principle. I began using visualization and even created one of those crazy dream boards I'd been so skeptical about. The first image I cut out was a picture of a BMW, my dream car. At the time, I was so far away from affording any car, let alone a BMW. To get around, I walked or rode in a jeepney, a very crowded mode of public transportation in the Philippines. Soon, however, I used the principle to turn my doubt into trust. It worked. And within a year, I bought my first BMW. Another principle I discovered was principle two. Be clear why you're here. When I was younger, I bounced from job to job, just to make a living and pay my bills. Then, during the seminar, Jack led us through an exercise to identify our deepest passion. I not only realized I have a love for teaching, but I began to identify it as my true gift and purpose— to begin taking action on this purpose, I created a breakthrough goal at the seminar to become the Philippines' leading success coach. I launched a series of seminars, teaching the principles I had learned from Jack. I started coaching and began consulting for different companies. My income quickly rose, and soon I was earning over a million pesos, which in the Philippines is a lot of money. 
Next, I combined my interest in travel with my passion for teaching and began conducting seminars around the world. Today, my training company is the biggest profit center of all the companies I own. Before, I hadn't been doing what I loved, so my success was hit or miss. Now, I'm so enthusiastic about teaching these principles that people flock to see me. I've even earned seven figures in one day. Jack has helped me see that you really can have it all. My first vision board was created in 2006, and since then I've achieved more than 70% of what I set out to do. Because of the success principles, I'm the highest-paid motivational speaker in the country, and I'm well on my way to becoming the Philippines' number one success coach. If I can go from broke to becoming a star in my field just by living these principles, anyone can. I've also seen the results in the lives of my clients as thousands of my countrymen have achieved their dreams. Many were living a hand-to-mouth existence, but are now on their way to becoming multimillionaires. We are all living proof that the principles always work, if you always work the principles. John Kaloub experienced the power of the success principles, and you too will see changes in your life when you apply these classic principles along with the new insights contained in this 10th anniversary edition. I salute you. I congratulate you. I welcome you on this journey. To your success, Jack Canfield. Introduction If a man, for whatever reason, has the opportunity to lead an extraordinary life, he has no right to keep it to himself. Jacques-Yves Cousteau legendary underwater explorer and filmmaker. If a man writes a book, let him set down only what he knows. I have guesses enough of my own. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, German poet, novelist, playwright, and philosopher. This is not a book of good ideas. This is a book of timeless principles used by successful men and women throughout history. I have studied these success principles for over 30 years, and have applied them to my own life. The phenomenal level of success that I now enjoy is the result of applying these principles day in and day out since I began to learn them in 1968. My success includes being the author and editor of more than 200 books, including 60 New York Times bestsellers, with over 500 million copies in print in 50 languages around the world holding a Guinness Book World Record for having seven books on the May 24, 1998 New York Times bestseller list, earning a multi-million dollar net income every year for the past 20 years, living in a beautiful California estate, appearing on every major talk show in America, from Oprah and Montel to Larry King Live and Good Morning America, having a weekly newspaper column read by millions every week commanding speaking fees of $25,000 to $60,000 a talk, speaking to Fortune 500 companies all over the world, being the recipient of numerous professional and civic awards, having an outrageous relationship with my amazing wife and wonderful children, and having achieved a steady state of wellness, balance, happiness, and inner peace. I get to socialize with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, movie, television, and recording stars, celebrated authors, and the world's finest spiritual teachers and leaders. I have spoken to members of Congress, 
professional athletes, corporate managers, and sales superstars in many of the best resorts and retreat centers in the world, from the Four Seasons Resort in the British West Indies to the finest hotels in Acapulco and Cancun. I enjoy skiing in Idaho, California, and Utah, go river rafting in Colorado, and hike in the mountains of California and Washington. Plus, I get to vacation in the world's finest resorts in Hawaii, Australia, Thailand, Morocco, France, Bali, and Italy. All in all, life is a real kick. Yet, like most of you reading this book, my life started out in a very average way. I grew up in Wheeling, West Virginia, where my dad worked in a florist's shop, making $8,000 a year. My mother was an alcoholic, and my father was a workaholic. I worked during the summers to make ends meet, as a lifeguard at a pool, and at the same florist shop as my father. I went to college on a scholarship, and worked serving breakfast in one of the dorms to pay for books, clothes, and dates. Nobody handed me anything on a silver platter. During my last year of graduate school, I had a part-time teaching job that paid me $120 every two weeks. My rent was $79 a month, so that left $161 to cover all my other expenses. Toward the end of the month, I ate what became known as my 21-cent dinners, a 10-cent can of tomato paste, garlic salt, and water over an 11-cent bag of spaghetti noodles. I know what it is like to be scraping by on the bottom rungs of the economic ladder. After graduate school, I started my career as a high school history teacher in an all-black school on the south side of Chicago. And then I met my mentor, W. Clement Stone. Stone was a self-made multimillionaire who hired me to work at his foundation, where he trained me in the fundamental success principles that I still operate from today. My job was to teach these same principles to others. Over the years, I have gone on from my time with Mr. Stone to interview hundreds of successful people, Olympic and professional athletes, celebrated entertainers, best-selling authors, business leaders, political leaders, successful entrepreneurs, and top salespeople. I have read literally thousands of books, attended hundreds of seminars, and listened to thousands of hours of audio programs to uncover the universal principles for creating success and happiness. I then applied those principles to my own life. The ones that worked are the principles I have taught in my speeches, seminars, and workshops to well over two million people in all 50 U.S. states and in 36 countries around the world. These principles and techniques have not only worked for me, but they have also helped hundreds of thousands of my students achieve breakthrough success in their careers, greater wealth in their finances, greater aliveness and joy in their relationships, and greater happiness and fulfillment in their lives. My students have started successful businesses, become self-made millionaires, achieved athletic stardom, received lucrative recording contracts, starred in movie and television roles, won political offices, had huge impact in their communities, written best-selling books, been named Teacher of the Year in their school districts, broken all sales records in their companies, written award-winning screenplays, become presidents of their corporations, been recognized for their outstanding philanthropic contributions, created highly successful relationships, and raised unusually happy and successful children. The principles always work, 
if you always work the principles. All of these same results are possible for you. I know for a fact that you too can attain unimagined levels of success. Why? Because the principles and techniques always work. All you have to do is put them to work for you. A few days before I wrote this book, I was interviewed on a television show in Dallas, Texas. I had made the claim that if people would use the principles I was teaching, I could double their income and double their time off in less than two years. The woman interviewing me was highly skeptical. I gave her a copy of one of my audio programs and told her that if she used the principles and techniques for two years and she didn't double her income and double her time off, I would come back on her show and write her a check for $1,000. If they did work, she had to ask me back and tell her viewers the principles had worked. A short nine months later, I ran into her at the National Speakers Association convention in Orlando, Florida. She told me that not only had she already doubled her income, but she had also moved to a bigger station with a substantial pay increase. It started a public speaking career and had already finished and sold a book, all in just nine months. The fact is that anyone can consistently produce these kinds of results on a regular basis. All you have to do is decide what you want, believe you deserve it, and practice the success principles in this book. The fundamentals are the same for all people and all professions, even if you're currently unemployed. It doesn't matter if your goals are to be the top salesperson in your company, get straight A's in school, lose weight, buy your dream home, or become a world-class professional athlete, rock star, award-winning journalist, multimillionaire, or successful entrepreneur. The principles and strategies are the same. And if you learn them, assimilate them, and apply them with discipline every day, they will transform your life beyond your wildest dreams. You can't hire someone else to do your push-ups for you. As motivational philosopher Jim Rohn so aptly put it, you can't hire someone else to do your push-ups for you. You must do them yourself if you are to get any value out of them. Whether it is exercising, meditating, reading, studying, learning a new language, creating a mastermind group, setting measurable goals, visualizing success, repeating affirmations, or practicing a new skill, you are going to have to do it. No one else can do these things for you. I will give you the roadmap, but you will have to drive the car. I will teach you the principles, but you will have to apply them. If you choose to put in the effort, I promise you the rewards will be well worth it. How This Book Is Structured To help you quickly learn these powerful principles, I have organized this book into six sections. Part 1. The Fundamentals of Success consists of 25 chapters that contain the absolute basics you must do to get from where you are to where you want to be. You'll start by exploring the critical importance of taking 100% responsibility for your life and your results. From there, you'll learn how to clarify your life purpose, your vision for your ideal life, and what you truly want to achieve. Next, we'll look at how to create an unshakable belief in yourself and your dreams. Then I'll help you turn your vision into a set of concrete goals and an action plan for achieving them. I'll also teach you how to harness the incredible power of affirmations and visualization, two of the greatest success secrets of all Olympic athletes, top entrepreneurs, world leaders, and high achievers.
The next few chapters have to do with taking those necessary but sometimes scary action steps that are required to make your dreams come true. Part 2, Transform Yourself for Success, addresses the important inner work you'll need to do, work that'll help you remove any mental and emotional blocks you may have to success. It's not enough to know what to do. You also need to understand the methodology for removing self-defeating beliefs, fears, and habits that are holding you back. Like driving your car with the emergency brake on, these blocks can significantly slow your progress. You must learn how to release the brakes, or you will always experience life as a struggle and fall short of your intended goals. Part 3. Build Your Success Team reveals how to build different kinds of support teams so you can spend your time focusing exclusively on your core genius. You will also learn how to redefine time, utilize the benefits of a personal coach, and access your own inner wisdom, an untapped but ultra-rich resource. In Part 4, Create Successful Relationships, I'll teach you a number of principles, as well as some very practical techniques, for building and maintaining successful relationships. In this day of strategic alliances and power networks, it's literally impossible to build large-scale, long-lasting success without world-class relationship skills, including in social media. Next, because so many people equate success with money, and because money is vital to our survival and the quality of our life, Part 5 is entitled Success and Money. I'll teach you how to develop a more positive money consciousness, how to ensure that you have plenty of money to live the lifestyle you want, both now and after you retire, and the importance of tithing and service in guaranteeing your financial success. Finally, in Part 6, because technology is so important today, I've honed down the most important principles that successful people follow in Success in the Digital Age, a look at how to master only the technology you need, how to brand yourself and develop a unique voice online, how to use social media to connect and develop valuable relationships, and how to use crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, and other internet-based strategies to find the people and resources that can help you reach your most important goals. How to Read This Book Everyone learns differently, and you probably know how you learn best. And though there are many ways that you can read this book, I'd like to make a few suggestions that previous readers have found helpful. You may want to read this book through once, just to get a feel for the total process, before you start the work of creating the life you truly seek. The principles are presented in an order that builds one upon the other. They are like the numbers in a combination lock. You need all the numbers, and you need them in the right order. It doesn't matter what color, race, gender, or age you are. If you know the combination, the lock has to open for you. As you are reading, I strongly encourage you to underline and highlight everything that feels important to you. Make notes in the margin about the things you'll put into action. Then review those notes and highlighted sections again and again. Repetition is the key to real learning. Every time you reread portions of this book, you'll literally remind yourself of what you need to do to get from where you are to where you want to be. As you'll discover, it takes repetitive exposure over time to a new idea before that idea becomes a natural part of your way of thinking and being. You may also discover that you're already familiar with some of the principles here. That's great. But ask yourself, 
Am I currently practicing them? If not, make a commitment to put them into action now. Remember, the principles only work if you work the principles. The second time you read through this book, you'll want to read one chapter at a time. Then take whatever time necessary to put into practice that principle and the techniques that accompany it. If you're already doing some of these things, keep doing them. If not, start now. Like many of my past students and clients, you too may find yourself resisting taking some of the suggested action steps. But my experience has shown that the ones you most resist are the ones you most need to embrace. Remember, reading this book is not the same as doing the homework. Any more than reading a book on weight loss is the same as actually eliminating certain foods, eating fewer calories, and exercising more. You might find it useful to connect with one or two other people who would like to join you as accountability partners. See page four hundred and eight, and ensure that each of you actually implements what you learn. True learning only occurs when you assimilate and apply the new information, where there is a change in your behavior. A warning. Of course, any change requires sustained effort to overcome years' worth of internal and external resistance. Initially, you may find yourself getting very excited about all this new information. You may feel a newfound sense of hope and enthusiasm for the new vision of your life as it can be. This is good, but be forewarned that you may also begin to experience other feelings as well. You may feel frustration at not knowing about all of this earlier. Anger at your parents and teachers for not teaching you these important concepts at home and at school, or anger at yourself for having already learned many of these things and not having acted on them. Just take a deep breath and realize that this is all part of the process of your journey. Everything in the past has actually been perfect. Everything in your past has led you to this transformative moment in time. Everyone, including you, has always done the best they could with what they knew at the time. Now you are about to know more. Celebrate your new awareness. It is about to set you free. You may also find that there will be times when you wonder, "Why isn't all of this working faster? Why haven't I already achieved my goal? Why aren't I rich already? Why don't I have the man or woman in my dreams by now? When am I going to achieve my ideal weight?" Success takes time, effort, perseverance, and patience. If you apply all of the principles and techniques covered in this book, you will achieve your goals. You will realize your dreams, but it won't happen overnight. Finally, it's natural in the pursuit of any goal to come upon obstacles, to feel temporarily stuck on a plateau. This is normal. Anyone who has ever played a musical instrument, participated in a sport, or practiced a martial art knows that you hit plateaus where it seems as though you're making no progress whatsoever. That's when the uninitiated often quit, give up, drop out. Or take up another instrument or sport, but the wise have discovered if they just keep practicing their instrument, sport, or martial art, or in your case, the success principles in this book, eventually they make what feels like a sudden leap to a higher level of proficiency. Be patient, hang in there, don't give up. You will break through. I promise you, the principles always work. Okay. Let's get started. It's time to start living the life you've imagined. Henry James.
American-born author of 20 novels, 112 stories, and 12 plays. Part 1. The Fundamentals of Success Learn the fundamentals of the game and stick to them. Band-Aid remedies never last. Jack Nicklaus, legendary professional golfer. Principle 1. Take 100% responsibility for your life. You must take personal responsibility. You cannot change the circumstances, the seasons, or the wind. But you can change yourself. Jim Rohn, America's foremost business philosopher. One of the most pervasive myths in the American culture today is that we are entitled to a great life, that somehow, somewhere, someone, certainly not us, is responsible for filling our lives with continual happiness, exciting career options, nurturing family time, and blissful personal relationships simply because we exist. But the real truth, and the one lesson this whole book is based on, is that there is only one person responsible for the quality of life you live. That person is you. If you want to be successful, you have to take 100% responsibility for everything that you experience in your life. This includes the level of your achievements, the results you produce, the quality of your relationships, the state of your health and physical fitness, your income, your debts, your feelings, everything. This is not easy. In fact, most of us have been conditioned to blame something outside of ourselves for the parts of our life we don't like. We blame our parents, our bosses, our friends, our co-workers, our spouse, the weather, the economy, the government, our astrological chart, our lack of money, anyone or anything we can pin the blame on. We never want to look at where the real problem is. Ourselves. There is a wonderful story told about a man who is out walking one night and comes upon another man down on his knees looking for something under a street lamp. The passerby inquires as to what the other man is looking for. He answers that he is looking for his lost key. The passerby offers to help and gets down on his knees and helps him search for the key. After an hour of fruitless searching, he says, We've looked everywhere for it and we haven't found it. Are you sure that you lost it here? The other man replies, No, I lost it in my house, but there is more light out here under the street lamp. It is time to stop looking outside yourself for the answers to why you haven't created the life and results you want. For it is you who creates the quality of the life you lead and the results you produce. You. No one else. To achieve major success in life, to achieve those things that are most important to you, you must assume 100% responsibility for your life. Nothing less will do. 100% Responsibility for Everything As I mentioned in the introduction, when I was only one year out of graduate school, I had the good fortune to work for W. Clement Stone. He was a self-made multimillionaire worth $600 million at the time. Stone was also America's premier success guru. He was the publisher of Success Magazine, author of The Success System That Never Fails, and co-author with Napoleon Hill of Success Through a Positive Mental Attitude. When I was completing my first week's orientation, Mr. Stone asked me if I took 100% responsibility for my life. I think so, I responded. This is a yes or no question, young man. 
You either do or you don't. Well, I guess I'm not sure. Have you ever blamed anyone for any circumstance in your life? Have you ever complained about anything? Uh, yeah, I guess I have. Don't guess. Think. Yes, I have. Okay, then. That means you don't take 100% responsibility for your life. Taking 100% responsibility means you acknowledge that you create everything that happens to you. It means you understand that you are the cause of all of your experience. If you want to be really successful, and I know you do, then you will have to give up blaming and complaining and take total responsibility for your life. That means all your results, both your successes and your failures. That is the prerequisite for creating a life of success. It is only by acknowledging that you have created everything up until now that you take charge of creating the future you want. You see, Jack, if you realize that you have created your current conditions, then you can uncreate them and recreate them at will. Do you understand that? Yes, sir, I do. Are you willing to take 100% responsibility for your life? Yes, sir. I am. And I did. You have to give up all your excuses. 99% of all failures come from people who have a habit of making excuses. George Washington Carver, chemist who discovered over 325 uses for the peanut. If you want to create the life of your dreams, then you are going to have to take 100% responsibility for your life as well. That means giving up all your excuses, all your victim stories, all the reasons why you can't and why you haven't up until now, and all your blaming of outside circumstances. You have to give them all up forever. You have to take the position that you have always had the power to make it different, to get it right, to produce the desired result. For whatever reason, ignorance, lack of awareness, fear, needing to be right, the need to feel safe, you chose not to exercise that power. Who knows why? It doesn't matter. The past is the past. All that matters now is that from this point forward you choose. That's right. It's a choice. To act as if you are 100% responsible for everything that does or doesn't happen to you. If something doesn't turn out as planned, you will ask yourself, How did I create that? What was I thinking? What were my beliefs? What did I say or not say? What did I do or not do to create that result? How did I get the other person to act that way? What do I need to do differently next time to get the result I want? A few years after I met Mr. Stone, Dr. Robert Resnick, a psychotherapist in Los Angeles, taught me a very simple but very important formula that made this idea of 100% responsibility even clearer to me. The formula is E plus R equals O. Event plus response equals outcome. The basic idea is that every outcome you experience in life, whether it is success or failure, wealth or poverty, health or illness, intimacy or estrangement, joy or frustration, is the result of how you have responded to an earlier event or events in your life. If you don't like the outcomes you are currently getting, there are two basic choices you can make. 1. You can blame the event, E, for your lack of results, O. In other words, you can blame the economy, the weather, the lack of money, your lack of education, 
racism, gender bias, the current administration in Washington, your parents, your wife or husband, your boss's attitude, your employees, the system or lack of systems, and so on. If you're a golfer, you've probably even blamed your clubs and the course you've played on. No doubt all these factors do exist, but if they were the deciding factor, nobody would ever succeed. Jackie Robinson would never have played Major League Baseball. Barack Obama would never have become President of the United States. Sidney Poitier and Denzel Washington would never have become movie stars. Dianne Feinstein and Barbara Boxer would never have become U.S. Senators. Bill Gates would never have founded Microsoft. And Steve Jobs would never have started Apple Computers. For every reason why it's not possible, there are hundreds of people who have faced the same circumstances and succeeded. Lots of people overcome these so-called limiting factors, so it can't be the limiting factors that limit you. It is not the external conditions and circumstances that stop you. It is you. We stop ourselves. We think limiting thoughts and engage in self-defeating behaviors. We defend our self-destructive habits, such as drinking, smoking, and not getting enough sleep, with indefensible logic. We ignore useful feedback, fail to continuously educate ourselves and learn new skills, waste time on the trivial aspects of our lives, engage in idle gossip, eat unhealthy food, fail to exercise, spend more money than we make, fail to invest in our future, avoid necessary conflict, fail to tell the uncomfortable truth, don't ask for what we want and then wonder why our lives don't work. 2. You can instead simply change your responses, R, to the events, E, the way things are, until you get the outcomes, O, you want. You can change your thinking, change your communication, change the pictures you hold in your head, your images of yourself and the world, and change your behavior, the things you do. That is all you really have any control over anyway. Unfortunately, most of us are so run by our habits that we never change our behavior. We get stuck in our conditioned responses to our spouses and our children, to our colleagues at work, to our customers and our clients, to our students, and to the world at large. We are a bundle of conditioned reflexes that operate outside of our control. You have to regain control of your thoughts, your images, your dreams and daydreams, and your behavior. Everything you think, say, and do needs to become intentional and aligned with your purpose, your values, and your goals. If you don't like your outcomes, change your responses. Let's look at some examples of how this works. I remember living in Los Angeles during a terrible earthquake. Two days later, I watched as a CNN reporter interviewed people commuting to work. The earthquake had damaged one of the main freeways leading into the city. Traffic was at a standstill, and what was normally a one-hour drive had become a two- or three-hour drive. The CNN reporter knocked on the window of one of the cars stuck in traffic and asked the driver how he was doing. He responded angrily, I hate California. First there were fires, then floods, and now an earthquake. No matter what time I leave in the morning, I'm going to be late for work. This sucks. Then the reporter knocked on the window of the car behind him and asked the second driver the same question. This driver was all smiles. He replied, It's no problem. 
I left my house at 5 a.m. I don't think under the circumstances my boss can ask for more than that. I have lots of music and my Spanish language lessons with me. I've got my cell phone. I have coffee and a thermos. My lunch? I even brought a book to read. So I'm fine. Now, if the earthquake or the traffic, the event, were really the deciding variables, then everyone should have been angry. But everyone wasn't. It was their individual response to the traffic that gave them their particular outcome. It was thinking negative thoughts or thinking positive thoughts, leaving the house prepared or leaving the house unprepared that made the difference. It was all a matter of attitude and behavior that created their completely different experiences. I've heard there's going to be a recession. I've decided not to participate. A friend of mine owns a Lexus dealership in Southern California. When war in the Middle East broke out, people stopped coming in to buy Lexuses. My friend and his sales team knew that if they didn't change their response, R, to the event, E, of nobody coming into the showroom, they were going to slowly go out of business. Their normal response, R, would have been to continue placing ads in the newspaper and on the radio, then wait for people to come into the dealership. But that wasn't working. The outcome, O, they were getting was a steady decrease in sales. So they tried a number of new things. The one that worked was driving a fleet of new cars out to where the rich people were, the country clubs, marinas, polo grounds, parties in Beverly Hills, Westlake Village, and Lake Sherwood, and then inviting them to take a spin in a new Lexus. Now, think about this. Have you ever test-driven a new car and then got back into your old car? Remember that feeling of dissatisfaction you felt as you compared your old car to the new car you had just driven? Your old car was fine up until then, but suddenly you knew there was something better, and you wanted it. The same thing happened with these folks. After test-driving the new car, a high percentage of the people bought or leased a new Lexus. The dealership had changed their response, R, to an unexpected event, E, the war, until they got the outcome, O, increased sales that they wanted. They actually ended up selling more cars per week than before the war broke out. Everything you experience today is the result of choices you have made in the past. Everything you experience in life, both internally and externally, is the result of how you have responded to a previous event. Event. You are given a $400 bonus. Response. You spend it on a night on the town with friends. Outcome? You are broke. Event. You are given a $400 bonus. Response. You invest it in your mutual fund. Outcome? You have an increased net worth. You have control over only three things in your life. The thoughts you think, the images you visualize, and the actions you take. Your behavior. How you use these three things determines everything you experience. If you don't like what you are producing and experiencing, you have to change your responses. Change your negative thoughts to positive ones. Change what you daydream about. Change your habits. Change what you read. Change your friends. Change how you talk to yourself and others. If you keep on doing what you've always done, you'll keep on getting what you've always got. Twelve-step programs such as Alcoholics Anonymous define insanity as continuing the same behavior and expecting a different result. It ain't gonna happen. If you're an alcoholic and you keep on drinking, 
your life is not going to get any better. Likewise, if you only continue your current behaviors, your life is not going to get any better either. The day you change your responses is the day your life will begin to get better. If what you are currently doing would produce the more and better that you are seeking in life, the more and better would have already shown up. If you want something different, you're going to have to do something different. You have to give up blaming. All blame is a waste of time, no matter how much fault you find with another, and regardless of how much you blame him, it will not change you. Wayne Dyer, co-author of How to Get What You Really, 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 Really Want. You will never become successful as long as you continue to blame someone or something else for your lack of success. If you are going to be a winner, you have to acknowledge the truth. It is you who took the actions, thought the thoughts, created the feelings, and made the choices that got you to where you are now. It was you. You are the one who ate the junk food. You are the one who didn't say no. You are the one who took the job. You are the one who stayed in the job. You are the one who chose to believe them. You are the one who ignored your intuition. You are the one who abandoned your dream. You are the one who bought it. You are the one who didn't take care of it. You are the one who decided you had to do it alone. You are the one who trusted him. You are the one who said yes to the dogs. In short, you thought the thoughts, you created the feelings, you made the choice, you said the words, and that's why you are where you are now. You have to give up complaining. The man who complains about the way the ball bounces is likely the one who dropped it. Lou Holtz The only coach in NCAA history to lead six different college teams to postseason bowl games, and winner of a national championship and Coach of the Year honors, now an ESPN football analyst. Let's take a moment to really look at complaining. In order to complain about something or someone, you have to believe that something better exists. You have to have a reference point of something you prefer that you are not willing to take responsibility for creating. Let's look at that more closely. If you didn't believe there was something better possible, more money, a bigger house, a more fulfilling job, more fun, a more loving partner, you couldn't complain. So you have this image of something better, and you know you would prefer it, but you are unwilling to take the risks required to create it. Complaining is an ineffective response to an event that does not produce a better outcome. Think about this. People only complain about things they can do something about. We don't complain about the things we have no power over. Have you ever heard anyone complain about gravity? No, never. Have you ever seen an elderly person all bent over with age, walking slowly down the street with the aid of a walker, complaining about gravity? Of course not. But why not? If it weren't for gravity, people wouldn't fall down the stairs, planes wouldn't fall out of the sky, and we wouldn't break any dishes. But nobody complains about it. And the reason is because gravity just exists. There is nothing anyone can do about gravity, so we just accept it. We know that complaining will not change it, so we don't complain about it. In fact, because it just is, we use gravity to our advantage. We build aqueducts down mountainsides to carry water to us, and we use drains to take away our waste. 
Even more interesting is that we choose to play with gravity, to have fun with it. Almost every sport we play uses gravity. We ski, skydive, high jump, throw the discus and the javelin, and play basketball, baseball, and golf, all of which require gravity. The circumstances you complain about are all situations you can change, but you have chosen not to. You can get a better job, find a more loving partner, make more money, move to where the jobs are, live in a nicer house, and eat healthier food. But all of these things would require you to change. You could learn to cook healthier food, say no in the face of peer pressure, quit and find a better job, take the time to conduct due diligence, trust your own gut feelings, go back to school to pursue your dream, take better care of your possessions, reach out for help, ask others to assist you, take a self-development class, sell or give away the dogs. But why don't you simply do those things? It's because they involve risks. You run the risk of being unemployed, left alone, or ridiculed and judged by others. You run the risk of failure, confrontation, or being wrong. You run the risk of your mother, your neighbors, or your spouse disapproving of you. Making a change might take effort, money, and time. It might be uncomfortable, difficult, or confusing. And so, to avoid risking any of those uncomfortable feelings and experiences, you stay put and complain about it. As I stated before, complaining means you have a reference point for something better that you would prefer, but that you are unwilling to take the risk of creating. Either accept that you are making the choice to stay where you are, take responsibility for your choice and stop complaining, or... Take the risk of doing something new and different to create your life exactly the way you want it. If you want to get from where you are to where you want to be, of course you're going to have to take that risk. So make the decision to stop complaining, to stop spending time with complainers, and get on with creating the life of your dreams. Pete Carroll, the coach of the NFL Seattle Seahawks football team, which won the 2014 Super Bowl, has three rules for his team. 1. Always protect the team. 2. No whining, no complaining, and no excuses. And 3. Be early. These are the rules of a Super Bowl championship team. They are worth adapting. The $2 Game Here's an exercise you can do in your home or your office. It's one we do in ours and in our seminars. Find a large jar or a fishbowl and label it no blaming, no complaints, no excuses. Every time you or someone in your group catches themselves blaming someone else, complaining about something, or making an excuse for their lack of results, the offender has to put $2 in the jar, not as punishment, but as a technique to deepen awareness that those behaviors have a cost. You're complaining to the wrong person. Have you ever noticed that people almost always complain to the wrong person? To someone who can't do anything about their complaint? They go to work and complain about their spouse. Then they come home and complain to their spouse about the people at work. Why? Because it's easier. It's less risky. It takes courage to tell your spouse that you are not happy with the way things are at home. It takes courage to ask for a behavioral change. It also takes courage to ask your boss to plan better so that you don't end up working every weekend. 
but only your boss can do anything about that. Your spouse can't. Learn to replace complaining with making requests and taking action that will achieve your desired outcomes. That is what successful people do. That is what works. If you find yourself in a situation you don't like, either work to make it better or leave. Do something to change it or get the heck out. Agree to work on the relationship or get a divorce. Work to improve working conditions or find a new job. Either way, you will get a change. As the old adage says, don't just sit there and complain, do something. And remember, it's up to you to make the change, to do something different. The world doesn't owe you anything. You have to create it. You either create or allow everything that happens to you. To be powerful, you need to take the position that you create or allow everything that happens to you. By create, I mean that you directly cause something to happen by your actions or inactions. If you walk up to a man in a bar who is bigger than you and has obviously been drinking for a long time and say to him, you are really ugly and stupid, and he jumps off the bar stool, hits you in the jaw, and you end up in the hospital. You created that. That's an easy-to-understand example. Here's one that may be harder to swallow. You work late every night. You come home tired and burned out. You eat dinner in a coma, and then sit down in front of the television to watch a basketball game. You're too tired and stressed out to do anything else, like go for a walk or play with the kids. This goes on for years. Your wife asks you to talk to her. You say, Later, I'm watching the game. Three years later, you come home to an empty house and a note that she has left you and taken the kids. You created that one, too. Other times, we simply allow things to happen to us by our inaction and our unwillingness to do what is necessary to create or maintain what we want. You didn't follow through on your threat to take away privileges if the kids didn't clean up after themselves, and now the house looks like a war zone. You didn't demand he join you in counseling or leave the first time he hit you, so now you're still getting hit. You didn't attend any sales and motivational seminars because you were too busy, and now the new kid just won the top sales award. You didn't make the time to take the dogs to obedience training, and now they're out of control. You didn't take the time to maintain your car, and now you're sitting by the side of the road with your car broken down. You didn't go back to school, and now you are being passed over for a promotion. Realize that you are not the victim here. You stood passively by and let it happen. You didn't say anything, make a demand, make a request, say no, try something new, or leave. Yellow Alerts be aware that nothing ever just happens to you. Just like the yellow alerts in the Star Trek television series and movies, you almost always receive advance warnings in the form of telltale signs, comments from others, gut instinct, or intuition that alert you to the impending danger and give you time to prevent the unwanted outcome. You are getting yellow alerts all the time. They are external yellow alerts. He keeps coming home later and later with alcohol on his breath. The client's first check bounced. He screamed at his secretary. His mother warned you. Your friends told you. And there are internal yellow alerts. 
that feeling in your stomach, that fleeting thought that just may be, that intuition that said, that fear that emerged, that dream that woke you up in the middle of the night. We have a whole language that informs us. Clues, inklings, suspicions, the handwriting on the wall. I had a feeling that I could see it coming for a mile. My gut feeling told me. These alerts give you time to change your response, R, in the E plus R equals zero equation. However, too many people ignore the yellow alerts because paying attention to them would require them to do something that is uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable to confront your spouse about the cigarettes in the ashtray that have lipstick on them. It is uncomfortable to speak up in a staff meeting when you are the only one who feels that the proposed plan won't work. It is uncomfortable to tell someone you don't trust them. So you pretend not to see and not to know because it is easier, more convenient, and less uncomfortable, avoids confrontation, keeps the peace, and protects you from having to take risks. Life becomes much easier. Successful people, on the other hand, face facts squarely. They do the uncomfortable and take steps to create their desired outcomes. Successful people don't wait for disasters to occur and then blame something or someone else for their problems. Once you begin to respond quickly and decisively to signals and events as they occur, life becomes much easier. You start seeing improved outcomes both internally and externally. Old internal self-talk such as, I feel like a victim, I feel used, nothing ever seems to work out for me, is replaced with, I feel great, I am in control, I can make things happen. External outcomes such as, nobody ever comes to our store, we missed our quarterly goals, people are complaining that our new product doesn't work, are transformed into, we have more money in the bank. I led the division in sales. Our product is flying off the shelves. Simple isn't necessarily easy. Though this principle is simple, it is not necessarily easy to implement. It requires concentrated awareness, dedicated discipline, and a willingness to experiment and take risks. You have to be willing to pay attention to what you are doing and to the results you are producing. You have to ask yourself, your family, your friends, your colleagues, your managers, your teachers, your coaches, and your clients for feedback. Is what I'm doing working? Could I be doing it better? Is there something more I should be doing that I'm not? Is there something I am doing that I should stop doing? How do you see me limiting myself? Don't be afraid to ask. Most people are afraid to ask for feedback about how they are doing because they are afraid of what they are going to hear. There is nothing to be afraid of. The truth is the truth. You are better off knowing the truth than not knowing it. And once you know, you can do something about it. You cannot improve your life, your relationships, your game, or your performance without feedback. Slow down and pay attention. Life will always give you feedback about the effects of your behavior if you'll just pay attention. If your golf ball is always slicing to the right, if you're not making sales, if you're getting C's in all your college courses, if your children are mad at you, 
if your body is tired and weak, if your house is a mess, or if you're not happy. This is all feedback. It is telling you that something is wrong. This is the time to start paying attention to what is happening. Ask yourself, how am I creating or allowing this to happen? What am I doing that's working that I need to be doing more of? Should I do more practicing, meditating, delegating, trusting, listening, asking questions, keeping my eye on the ball, advertising, saying, I love you, controlling my carbohydrate intake? Or, what am I doing that's not working? What do I need to be doing less of? Am I talking too much, watching too much television, spending too much money, eating too much sugar, drinking too much, being late too often, gossiping, putting other people down? You can also ask yourself, what am I not doing that I need to try and see if it works? Do I need to listen more, exercise, get more sleep, drink more water, ask for help, do more marketing, read, plan, communicate, delegate, follow through, hire a coach, volunteer, or be more appreciative? This book is full of proven success principles and techniques you can immediately put into practice in your life. You will have to suspend judgment, take a leap of faith, act as if they are true, and try them out. Only then will you have first-hand experience about their effectiveness for your life. You won't know if they work unless you give them a try. And here's the rub. No one else can do this for you. Only you can do it. But the formula is simple. Do more of what is working. Do less of what isn't. And try on new behaviors to see if they produce better results. Pay attention. Your results don't lie. The easiest, fastest, and best way to find out what is or isn't working is to pay attention to the results you are currently producing. You are either rich or you are not. You either command respect or you don't. You are either golfing par or you are not. You are either maintaining your ideal body weight or you are not. You are either happy or you are not. You either have what you want or you don't. It's that simple. Results don't lie. You have to give up any excuses and justifications and come to terms with the results you are producing. If you are under quota or overweight, all the great reasons in the world won't change that. The only thing that will change your results is to change your behavior. Prospect more. Get some sales training. Change your sales presentation. Change your diet. Consume fewer calories and exercise more frequently. These are things that will make a difference. But you have to first be willing to look at the results you are producing. The only starting point that works is reality. So start paying attention to what is so. Look around at your life and the people in it. Are you and they happy? Is there balance, beauty, comfort, and ease? Do your systems work? Are you getting what you want? Is your net worth increasing? Are your grades satisfactory? Are you healthy, fit, and pain-free? Are you getting better in all areas of your life? If not, then something needs to happen, and only you can make it happen. Don't kid yourself. Be ruthlessly honest with yourself. Take your own inventory. From Victim to Victory
Raj Bafsar was born to be a gymnast. It was the natural career choice for a kid who, at the age of four, lived to climb up things, including trees and furniture, and jump off them. His parents, worried that he'd hurt himself and destroy their house, signed him up for gymnastics classes at a nearby gym. Raj quickly fell in love with the sport, and by the age of ten he wanted to be the best at his sport that he loved and represent his country in the Olympics. He began focusing intensely on becoming a better gymnast, and soon the success began to show. He started winning first and second place at competitions, and was a five-time Texas champion by the time he entered high school. His high school and college years were a blur of awards and championships. Regional state champion, national champion, senior national team, and then placement in two medal-winning championship teams. In his mind, he was unstoppable. In 2004, Raj was competing for a spot in the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team. Of the 12 routines he'd done, 11 of them had been perfect. Everybody agreed that he was a shoe-in. Elated, he was thinking, Greece, here I come. But at the conclusion of the trials, when they read off the names of the Olympians, his wasn't on the list. Then he heard the words, Raj Bavsar, alternate. In that moment, his whole world, everything he'd been working toward for a decade and a half, was shattered. His expectations were sky-high and tangled up in his self-worth, so when they weren't met on that awful day in 2004, he came down to earth with a crash. For the next few years, he burned with one desire, to find out why he'd been denied. He needed to find someone to blame. Although Raj went to Greece as an alternate, it was a bittersweet experience watching his teammates work together and compete day after day. Unofficially, he was part of the team, yet it was clear he wasn't really one of them. He never had a chance to compete, and he returned from the trip disillusioned and lost. Back at home, he did some serious soul-searching. He asked himself, Do I truly enjoy gymnastics? Do I love the competition regardless of the scores and the accolades? His answer was yes. So he decided to recommit himself to being a gymnast, and this time to throw himself into the sport, not just to win competitions, but for the art of it and the love of it. Unfortunately, without the intense drive to win, his performance suffered. At the 2007 U.S. Nationals, held nine months before the 2008 Olympic team was selected, he bombed. His performance was rocky, and for the first time in nine years he didn't even make the national team. He had to own up to the truth. What he was doing wasn't working. A few days later, a friend of his, a 2000 Olympian himself, handed Raj a book and said, You need to read this. Raj took it from him and saw on the cover a picture of a white-haired guy with a big smile and the words, How to get from where you are to where you want to be. He thought, No book can get me where I want to be. My problem is different. But when his coach recommended the same book a few days later, Raj decided to give it a chance. I'll let Raj tell the rest of the story. The book was The Success Principles, and the first thing I learned was that to be successful, you have to take 100% responsibility for everything that happens in your life. This was a tough one to swallow, considering I had been convinced for years that life had played against me. Soon, however, I realized that harboring resentment and dwelling on what happened 
had gotten me nowhere. Suddenly, instead of continuing to look for someone to blame, I began to turn that energy inward and examine how my own mindset of fear and negativity had contributed to my recent performance. Where was my fear coming from, and what was causing these negative thoughts in my head? I had always thought that fear meant I was broken. But Jack taught me that successful people experience fear and negativity on a daily basis, yet still choose to move forward toward their goals. Negative thoughts, rejection, fear, they're just part of the process. Suddenly these thoughts became challenges to overcome, rather than huge roadblocks or evidence of my failure. I was on a whole new course. My coach saw the light go on in me. It was like a switch was flipped, he said. Working with him on a new training plan, I recommitted to my dream of being an Olympian. But now I also wanted to be an Olympian in life. I created a vision board and mind map, not only to help me visualize success, but also to break down my huge, lofty, overwhelming Olympic goal into areas of daily focus that I could manage. When the 2008 Olympic tryouts were held, I sailed through the competition. I felt happy, clear, and on top of my game. I nailed all my routines. With all the work I'd done on myself, I was confident they would name me to the team this time. But when they named the final team members, my name wasn't called. What? In a cruel repeat of 2004, I heard, Raj Bavzar, alternate. When a reporter from NBC asked me how I felt about being named an alternate a second time, I answered with one sentence. There is no external event that can defeat my sense of inner accomplishment. Still, I was honestly baffled that, after all I had done, my dream was still outside my grasp. While a part of me was ready to give up on being an Olympian, something inside me said, Keep the dream alive. There is no way this is over. The next morning, I called the USA gymnastics officials and reconfirmed that I'd be honored to be an alternate. For the next week, I trained hard and stayed ready. Then it was announced that Paul Ham, the 2004 Olympic gold medalist and a member of the Olympic team for 2008, had made the decision to withdraw due to injuries. The committee would decide which one of the three alternates would be chosen to replace him. Waiting for the decision was probably the most excruciating yet exciting 24 hours of my entire life. The next day at the gym, my coach, my sports performance counselor, and I were on the phone to USA Gymnastics when the president of the organization came on the line to give us the official announcement. As he started his announcement, saying how happy they were about the decision, and on and on, inside I was begging, just say the name. Is it me or not? At this time, he finally said, we'd like to announce the new member of the 2008 Olympic team, Raj Bavzar. With a shout, Raj fell to his knees. Then, smiling and crying at the same time, he stood up and hugged his coach. He hugged his counselor. He hugged everyone. But Raj also knew the road ahead would be difficult. With Paul Ham out, not a single member of the team had any Olympic experience. Sports media, even people in the gymnastics community, had written off the team, doubting they could make it into the finals. 
That was when Raj committed to doing whatever he could to keep their outlook positive. The night before the competition, he assembled all six team members and urged them to commit to caring for each other as human beings first, athletes second. In that moment, each knew that his teammates had his back. The next morning, the team walked onto the competition floor with their heads held high, and in a stunning upset, with the entire arena chanting, USA! USA! Raj and his teammates edged out the Germans to win the Olympic bronze medal. Principle 2. Be clear why you're here. Decide upon your major definite purpose in life, and then organize all your activities around it. Brian Tracy, one of America's leading authorities on the development of human potential and personal effectiveness. I believe each of us is born with a life purpose. Identifying, acknowledging, and honoring this purpose is perhaps the most important action that successful people take. They take the time to understand what they're here to do, and then they pursue that with passion and enthusiasm. What were you put on this earth to do? I discovered long ago what I was put on this earth to do. I determined my true purpose in life, my right livelihood. I discovered how to inject passion and determination into every activity I undertake, and I learned how purpose can bring an aspect of fun and fulfillment to virtually everything I do. Now I'd like to help uncover the same secret for you. You see, without a purpose in life, it's easy to get sidetracked on your life's journey. It's easy to wander and drift, accomplishing little. But with a purpose, everything in life seems to fall into place. To be on purpose means you're doing what you love to do, doing what you're good at, and accomplishing what's important to you. When you are truly and passionately on purpose, the people, resources, and opportunities you need naturally gravitate toward you. The world benefits, too, because when you act in alignment with your true life purpose, which may at first glance seem selfish, all of your actions automatically serve others. Some Personal Life Purpose Statements My life purpose is to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in a context of love and joy, in harmony with the highest good of all concerned. I inspire people to live their highest vision by collecting and disseminating inspiring stories through the Chicken Soup for the Soul series and in my inspirational keynote speeches. I empower people to live their dreams by writing practical self-help books like this one, Tapping into Ultimate Success and The Power of Focus, by designing courses for high school and college students, and by conducting seminars for individuals and corporations that teach powerful tools for creating one's ideal life both at work and at home. Here are the life purpose statements of some of my friends. It is important to note that they have all become self-made millionaires through the fulfillment of their life purpose. To inspire and empower people to achieve their destiny. Robert Allen, co-author of The One Minute Millionaire. To uplift humanity's consciousness through business. D.C. Cordova, co-founder of the Accelerated Business School. To humbly serve the Lord by being a loving, playful, powerful, 
and passionate example of the absolute joy that is available to us the moment we rejoice in God's gifts and sincerely love and serve all of His creations. Anthony Robbins, author of Personal Power and Get the Edge, Entrepreneur and Philanthropist. To leave the world a better place than I found it, for horses and for people, too. Monty Roberts, author of The Man Who Listens to Horses. Once you know what your life purpose is, you can organize all of your activities around it. Everything you do should be an expression of your purpose. If an activity didn't align with your purpose, you wouldn't work on it. Period. What's the why behind everything you do? Without purpose as the compass to guide you, your goals and action plans may not ultimately fulfill you. You don't want to get to the top of the ladder only to find you had it leaning against the wrong wall. When Julie Marie Carrier was a child, she was a very big fan of animals. As a result, all she ever heard growing up was, Julie, you should be a vet. You're going to be a great vet. That's what you should do. So when she got to Ohio State University, she took biology, anatomy, and chemistry and started studying to be a vet. A Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship allowed her to spend her senior year studying abroad in Manchester, England. Away from the family and faculty pressures back home, she found herself one dreary day sitting at her desk, surrounded by biology books and staring out the window, when it suddenly hit her. You know what? I'm totally miserable. What am I doing? I don't want to be a vet. Julie then asked herself, What is a job that I would love so much that I'd do it for free, but that I could actually get paid for? It's not being a vet. That's not the right job. Julie thought back over all the things she'd done in her life and what had made her the most happy. Suddenly, it hit her. It was all of the youth leadership conferences that she had volunteered at, and the communications and leadership courses she had taken as elective courses back at Ohio State. How could I have been so ignorant, she thought. Here I am in my fourth year at school and just finally realizing I'm on the wrong path. But it's been right here in front of me the whole time. I just never took the time to acknowledge it until now. Buoyed by her new insight, Julie spent the rest of her year in England taking courses in communications and media performance. When she returned to Ohio State, she was eventually able to convince the administration to let her create her own program in leadership studies. And while it took her two years longer to finally graduate, she went on to become a senior management consultant in leadership training and development for the Pentagon. She also won the Miss Virginia USA contest, which allowed her to spend much of the year speaking to kids all across Virginia, plus launch a national speaking career to empower youth with messages of leadership and character. By the way, Julie was able to do this at only 26 years old, a testament to the power that clarity of purpose can create in your life. Today, Julie has reached over a million young people as one of the top national youth leadership speakers for student conferences, high schools, colleges, and youth programs worldwide. You may have seen her on NBC's Today Show or Fox News in the New York Times, or as a success coach for teens and young women featured on a goal-setting TV show on MTV. Julie even received an Emmy nomination. 
You can learn more about Julie at www.thesuccessprinciples.com forward slash resources. The good news is that you don't have to go all the way to England to discover what you are really here to do. You can simply complete two simple exercises that will help you clarify your purpose. Your inner guidance system is your joy. It is the soul's duty to be loyal to its own desires. It must abandon itself to its master passion. Dame Rebecca West, best-selling author. You were born with an inner guidance system that tells you when you are on or off purpose by the amount of joy you are experiencing. The things that bring you the greatest joy are in alignment with your purpose. To begin to hone in on your purpose, here are a couple of exercises. The first is to make a list of the times you have felt most joyful and alive. What are the common elements of these experiences? Can you figure out a way to make a living doing these things? Pat Williams is the senior vice president of the NBA's Orlando Magic basketball team. He has also written more than 70 books and is a professional speaker. When I asked him what he felt the greatest secret to success was, he replied, Figure out what you love to do as young as you can and then organize your life around figuring out how to make a living at it. For young Pat, it was sports, more specifically, baseball. When his father took him to his first baseball game in Philadelphia, he fell in love with the game. He learned to read by reading the sports section of the New York Times. He knew he wanted to grow up and have a career in sports. He devoted almost every waking moment to it. He collected baseball cards, played sports, and wrote a sports column for the school newspaper. Pat went on to have a career in the front office of the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team, then with the Philadelphia 76ers basketball team. When the NBA considered granting an expansion team franchise to Orlando, Pat was there to lead the fight. Now in his 70s, Pat has enjoyed 50-plus years doing what he loves, and he has enjoyed every minute of it. Once you are clear about what brings you the greatest joy, you will have a major insight into your purpose. The second exercise is a simple but powerful way to create a compelling statement of your life purpose that can guide your behavior. Take time now to complete the following exercise. The Life Purpose Exercise There are many ways to approach defining your purpose. I learned this version of the Life Purpose Exercise from Arnold M. Patton, spiritual coach and author of You Can Have It All. His most recent book is The Journey. You can read more about Arnold at www.thesuccessprinciples.com forward slash resources. 1. List two of your unique personal qualities, such as enthusiasm and creativity. 2. List one or two ways you enjoy expressing those qualities when interacting with others, such as to support and to inspire. 3. Assume the world is perfect right now. What does this world look like? How is everyone interacting with everyone else? What does it feel like? Write your answer as a statement in the present tense, describing the ultimate condition, the perfect world as you see it and feel it. Remember, a perfect world is a fun place to be. Example. Everyone is freely expressing their own unique talents. Everyone is working in harmony. 
Everyone is expressing love. 4. Combine the three prior subdivisions of this paragraph into a single statement. Example. My purpose is to use my creativity and enthusiasm to support and inspire others to freely express their talents in a harmonious and loving way. Here are some examples of life purpose statements that people in my recent workshops have written. To use my humor, creativity, and knowledge to inspire, uplift, and empower people in recovery to stay sober. Recovery coach and author. To inspire and empower small business owners to systematize for easier revenue generation. Small business consultant and author. To inspire people to have faith in themselves and believe in their natural genius. Educator. To raise healthy, prosperous children who make a difference in the world. Full-time homemaker. To create a world in which people are living ecologically sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, and socially just lives. Environmentalist and social activist. To use my vast knowledge of integrative medicine to educate, inspire, and empower people to live longer and healthier lives. Holistic medical doctor. To live every day to the fullest and give back as much as possible while appreciating someone special every day. Contractor and home builder. To live my life with integrity and compassion while serving others and to always value the unexpected. Fireman. Staying on Purpose Once you have determined and written down your life purpose, read it every day, preferably in the morning. If you are artistic or strongly visual by nature, you may want to draw or paint a symbol or picture that represents your life purpose and then hang it somewhere, on the refrigerator, opposite your desk, near your bed, where you will see it every day. This will keep you focused on your purpose. As you move forward in the next few chapters to define your vision and your goals, make sure they are aligned with and serve to fulfill your purpose. Another approach to clarifying your purpose is to set aside some time for quiet reflection, using meditation to inquire within. See Principle 47. After you become relaxed and enter into a state of deep self-love and peacefulness, ask yourself, What is my purpose for living? Or, what is my unique role in the universe? Allow the answer to simply come to you. Let it be as expansive as you can imagine. The words that come need not be flowery or poetic. What is important is how inspired the words make you feel. If you really want to go deep with this exercise, you can do two more exercises we do in my Breakthrough to Success training. The first is the Passion Test. It is a simple exercise you can go through alone or with a partner. The process can be found in the book, The Passion Test, by Janet and Chris Atwood. The other exercise, which many people find to be the most powerful, is the Life Purpose Guided Visualization, part of my Awakening Power set of meditations on CD. This six-CD program contains 11 guided visualizations narrated by myself and Dr. Deborah Sandella. You can order this audio program at www.jackcanfield.com. 
Principle 3. Decide what you want. The indispensable first step to getting the things you want out of life is this. Decide what you want. Ben Stein, actor and author. Once you have decided why you're here, you have to decide what you want to do, be, and have. What do you want to accomplish? What do you want to experience? And what possessions do you want to acquire? In the journey from where you are to where you want to be, you have to decide where you want to be. In other words, what does success look like to you? One of the main reasons why most people don't get what they want is they haven't decided what they want. They haven't defined their desires in clear and compelling detail. Early childhood programming often gets in the way of what you want. Inside every one of us is that tiny seed of the you that you were meant to become. Unfortunately, you may have buried this seed in response to your parents, teachers, coaches, and other adult role models as you were growing up. You started out as a baby knowing exactly what you wanted. You knew when you were hungry. You spit out the foods you didn't like and avidly devoured the ones you did. You had no trouble expressing your needs and wants. You simply cried loudly with no inhibitions or holding back until you got what you wanted. You were fed, changed, and held. As you got older, you crawled around and moved toward whatever held the most interest for you. You were clear about what you wanted, and you headed straight toward it with no fear. So what happened? Somewhere along the way, someone said, Don't touch that. Stay away from there. Keep your hands to yourself. Eat everything on your plate, whether you like it or not. You don't really feel that way. You don't really want that. You should be ashamed of yourself. Stop crying. Don't be such a baby. As you got older, you heard, You can't have everything you want simply because you want it. Money doesn't grow on trees. Can't you think of anybody but yourself? Stop being so selfish. Stop doing what you're doing and come do what I want you to do. Don't live someone else's dreams. After many years of these kinds of sanctions, most of us eventually lost touch with the needs of our bodies and the desires of our hearts, and somehow got stuck trying to figure out what other people wanted us to do. We learned how to act and how to be to get their approval. As a result, we now do a lot of things we don't want to do, but that please a lot of other people. We go to medical school because that is what Dad wanted for us. We get married to please our mother. We get a real job instead of pursuing a dream career in the arts. We go straight into graduate school instead of taking a year off and backpacking through Europe. In the name of being sensible, we end up becoming numb to our own desires. It's no wonder that when we ask many teenagers what they want to do or be, they honestly answer, I don't know. There are too many layers of shoulds, ought tos, and you'd betters piled on top of and suffocating what they really want. So how do you reclaim yourself and your true desires? How do you get back to what you really want with no fear, shame, or inhibition? How do you reconnect with your real passion? You start on the smallest level by honoring your preferences in every situation, no matter how large or small. Don't think of them as petty. They might be inconsequential to someone else, but they are not to you. Stop settling for less than you want. 
If you're going to reown your power and get what you really want out of life, you'll have to stop saying, I don't know, I don't care, it doesn't matter to me, or the current favorite of teenagers, whatever. When you are confronted with a choice, no matter how small or insignificant, act as if you have a preference. Ask yourself, if I did know, what would it be? If I did care, which would I prefer? If it did matter, what would I rather do? Not being clear about what you want and making other people's needs and desires more important than your own is simply a habit. You can break it by practicing the opposite habit. The Yellow Notebook Many years ago, I took a workshop with self-esteem and motivational expert Sherry Carter-Scott, author of If Life is a Game, These are the Rules. As the twenty-four of us entered the training room on the first morning, we were directed to take a seat in one of the chairs facing the front of the room. There was a spiral-bound notebook on every chair. Some were blue, some were yellow, some were red. The one on my chair was yellow. I remember thinking, I hate yellow. I wish I had a blue one. Then Sherry said something that changed my life forever. If you don't like the color of the notebook you have, trade with someone else and get the one you want. You deserve to have everything in your life exactly the way you want it. Wow, what a radical concept. For twenty-some years, I had not operated from that premise. I had settled, thinking I couldn't have everything I wanted. So I turned to the person to my right and said, Would you mind trading your blue notebook for my yellow one? She responded, Not at all. I prefer yellow. I like the brightness of the color. I now had my blue notebook. Not a huge success in the greater scheme of things, but it was the beginning of reclaiming my birthright to acknowledge my preferences and get exactly what I want. Up until then, I would have discounted my preferences petty and not worth acting on. I would have continued to numb out my awareness of what I wanted. That day was a turning point for me. The beginning of allowing myself to know and act on my wants and desires in a much more powerful way. Make an I want list. One of the easiest ways to begin clarifying what you truly want is to make a list of 30 things you want to do, 30 things you want to have, and 30 things you want to be before you die. This is a great way to get the ball rolling. Another powerful technique to unearth your wants is to ask a friend to help you make an I want list. Have your friend continually ask, what do you want? What do you want? For 10 to 15 minutes and jot down your answers. You'll find the first ones aren't all that profound. In fact, most people usually hear themselves saying, I want a Mercedes. I want a big house on the ocean and so on. However, by the end of the 15-minute exercise, the real you begins to speak. I want people to love me. I want to express myself. I want to make a difference. I want to feel powerful. Ones that are more true expressions of your core values. Make a 20 things I love to do list. What often stops people from expressing their true desire is they don't think they can make a living doing what they love to do. What I love to do is hang out and talk with people, you might say. Well, Oprah Winfrey has made a living hanging out and talking with people for 30 years.
and my friend Diane Brouse, who is an international tour guide, makes a living hanging out and talking with people in some of the most exciting and exotic locations in the world. Tiger Woods loves to play golf. Ellen DeGeneres loves to make people laugh. My sister, Kimberly Kerberger, loves to design jewelry. Donald Trump loves to make deals and build buildings. I love to read and share what I have learned with others in books, speeches, and workshops. It is possible to make a living doing what you love. Make a list of 20 things you love to do, and then think of ways you can make a living doing some of those things. If you love sports, you can play sports, be a sports writer or photographer, or work in sports management as an agent or in the front office of a professional team. You could be a coach, a manager, or a scout. You could be a broadcaster, a camera operator, or a team publicist. There are myriad ways to make money in any field that you love. For now, just decide what you like to do, and in the following chapters I'll show you how to be successful and make money at it. Clarify your vision of your ideal life. The theme of this book is how to get from where you are to where you want to be. To accomplish this, you have to know two things, where you are and where you want to get to. Your vision is a detailed description of where you want to get to. It describes in detail what your destination looks like and feels like. To create a balanced and successful life, your vision needs to include the following seven areas, work and career, finances, recreation and free time, health and fitness, relationships, personal goals, and contribution to the larger community. At this stage in the journey, it is not necessary to know exactly how you are going to get there. All that is important is that you figure out where there is. If you get clear on the what, the how will show up. Your Inner Global Positioning System The process of getting from where you are to where you want to be is like using the GPS, Global Positioning System technology, in your car or smartphone. For the system to work, it simply needs to know where you are now and where you want to go. The navigation system figures out where you are by the use of an onboard computer that receives signals from multiple satellites and calculates your exact position. When you type in your destination, the navigational system plots a perfect course for you. All you have to do is follow the instructions. Success in life works the same way. All you have to do is decide where you want to go by clarifying your vision. Then lock in the destination through goal setting, affirmations, and visualization, and then start moving in the right direction. Your inner GPS will keep unfolding your route as you continue to move forward. In other words, once you clarify and stay focused on your vision, the exact steps will keep appearing along the way. Once you are clear about what you want and keep your mind constantly focused on it, the how will keep showing up, sometimes just when you need it and not a moment earlier. High Achievers Have Bigger Visions The greater danger for most of us is not that our aim is too high and we miss it, but that it is too low and we reach it. Michelangelo Renaissance sculptor and painter who spent four years lying on his back painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I want to encourage you not to limit your vision in any way. Let it be as big as it is. When I interviewed Dave Linegar, 
chairman of the board of Remax, the country's largest franchise real estate company. He told me, always dream big dreams. Big dreams attract big people. General Wesley Clark, the former supreme allied commander of NATO forces in Europe, once told me, it doesn't take any more energy to create a big dream than it does to create a little one. My experience is that one of the few differences between the superachievers and the rest of the world is that the superachievers simply dream bigger. John F. Kennedy dreamed of putting a man on the moon. Martin Luther King Jr. dreamed of a country free of prejudice and injustice. Bill Gates dreams of a world in which every home has a computer that is connected to the Internet. Buckminster Fuller dreamed of a world where everybody had access to electrical power. These high achievers see the world from a whole different perspective, as a place where amazing things can happen, where billions of lives can be improved, where new technology can change the way we live, and where the world's resources can be leveraged for the greatest possible mutual gain. They believe anything is possible, and they believe they have an integral part in creating it. When Mark Victor Hansen and I first published Chicken Soup for the Soul, what we call our 2020 vision was also a big one, to sell one billion chicken soup books and to raise $500 million for charity through tithing a portion of all of our profits by the year 2020. We were and are very clear about what we want to accomplish. As of 2015, we have already sold more than 500 million copies in 47 languages. If you limit your choices only to what seems possible or reasonable, you disconnect yourself from what you truly want, and all that is left is a compromise. Robert Fritz, author of The Path of Least Resistance Don't let anyone talk you out of your vision. There are people who will try to talk you out of your vision. They will tell you that you are crazy and that it can't be done. My friend Monty Roberts, author of The Man Who Listens to Horses, which spent 58 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, calls these people dream stealers. Don't listen to them. When Monty was in high school, his teacher gave the class an assignment to write about what they wanted to do when they grew up. Monty wrote that he wanted to own a 200-acre ranch and raise thoroughbred racehorses. His teacher gave him an F and explained the grade reflected that he deemed Monty's dream unrealistic. No boy who was living in a camper on the back of a pickup truck would ever be able to amass enough money to buy a ranch, purchase breeding stock, and pay the necessary salaries for ranch hands. When he offered Monty the chance of rewriting his paper for a higher grade, Monty told him, You keep the F. I'm keeping my dream. Today, Monty's 154-acre Flag is Up Farms in Solvang, California, raises thoroughbred racehorses, and trains hundreds of horse trainers in a more humane way to join up with and train horses. To learn more about Monty and his work, go to www.thesuccessprinciples.com forward slash resources or read one of his books. The Man Who Listens to Horses, Shy Boy, Horse Sense for People, and From My Hands to Yours. His work has produced eight national champions in the show rings of the world and more than 300 international stakes winners in thoroughbred racing. The Vision Exercise Create your future from your future 
not your past. Werner Erhardt, founder of Est Training and the Landmark Forum. The following exercise is designed to help you clarify your vision. Start by putting on some relaxing music and sitting quietly in a comfortable environment where you won't be disturbed. Then, close your eyes and ask your subconscious mind to give you images of what your ideal life would look like if you could have it exactly the way you want it, in each of the following categories. 1. First, focus on the financial area of your life. What is your ideal annual income and monthly cash flow? How much money do you have in savings and investments? What is your total net worth? Next, what does your home look like? Where is it located? Does it have a view? What kind of yard and landscaping does it have? Is there a pool or a stable for horses? What does the furniture look like? Are there paintings hanging in the rooms? Walk through your perfect house, filling in all of the details. At this point, don't worry about how you'll get that house. Don't sabotage yourself by saying, I can't live in Malibu because I don't make enough money. Once you give your mind's eye the picture, your mind will solve the not-enough-money challenge. Next, visualize what kind of car you are driving and any other important possessions your finances have provided. 2. Next, visualize your ideal job or career. Where are you working? What are you doing? With whom are you working? What kind of clients or customers do you have? What is your compensation like? Is it your own business? 3. Then focus on your free time, your recreation time. What are you doing with your family and friends in the free time you've created for yourself? What hobbies are you pursuing? What kinds of vacations do you take? What do you do for fun? 4. Next. What is your ideal vision of your body and your physical health? Are you free of all disease? Are you pain-free? How long do you live? Are you open, relaxed, in an ecstatic state of bliss all day long? Are you full of vitality? Are you flexible as well as strong? Do you exercise, eat good food, and drink lots of water? How much do you weigh? 5. Then move on to your ideal vision of your relationships with your family and friends. What is your relationship with your spouse and family like? Who are your friends? What do these friendships feel like? Are those relationships loving, supportive, empowering? What kinds of things do you do together? 6. What about the personal arena of your life? Do you see yourself going back to school, getting training? attending personal growth workshops, seeking therapy for a past hurt, or growing spiritually? Do you meditate or go on spiritual retreats with your church? Do you want to learn to play an instrument or write your autobiography? Do you want to run a marathon or take an art class? Do you want to travel to other countries? 7. Finally, focus on the community you've chosen to live in. What does it look like when it is operating perfectly? What kinds of community activities take place there? What charitable, philanthropic, or volunteer work? What do you do to help others and make a difference? How often do you participate in these activities? Who are you helping?
You can write down your answers as you go, or you can do the whole exercise first and then open your eyes and write them down. In either case, make sure you capture everything in writing as soon as you complete the exercise. Every day, review the vision you have written down. This will keep your conscious and subconscious minds focused on your vision. And as you apply the other principles in this book, you will begin to manifest all the different aspects of your vision. Share your vision for maximum impact. When you've finished writing down your vision, share your vision with a good friend whom you can trust to be positive and supportive. You might be afraid that your friend will think your vision is too outlandish, impossible to achieve, too idealistic, unrealistic, or materialistic. Almost everyone has these thoughts when they think about sharing their vision. But the truth is, most people, deep down in their hearts, want the very same things you want. Everyone wants financial abundance, a comfortable home, meaningful work they enjoy, good health, time to do the things they love, nurturing relationships with their family and friends, and an opportunity to make a difference in the world. But too few of us readily admit it. You'll find that, when you share your vision, some people will want to help you make it happen. Others will introduce you to friends and resources that can help you. You'll also find that each time you share your vision, it becomes clearer and feels more real and attainable. And most important, every time you share your vision, you strengthen your own subconscious belief that you can achieve it. From Living at the Mission to Living His Mission in July 2010, Logan Doughty was sitting outside a homeless shelter, awaiting intake into a long-term no-frills recovery program. He had recently hit rock bottom due to alcohol and drugs. His parents and siblings wouldn't take him in, and he couldn't control his drinking or his temper long enough for anyone to do anything more than show him the door. He was emotionally spent, physically tired, and seriously stressed. As the months went by at the rescue mission, his head slowly began to clear, and with the help of a 12-step program plus kind but strict Christian souls, he began to believe he might recover from this devastating chapter in his life. Eventually, his family invited him over occasionally and actually enjoyed having him around. At Christmas that year, his sister Alice gave him a copy of The Success Principles. He thought the gift was sort of corny, but he thanked her nonetheless and added it to his stack of books to read. Logan writes, I respect my sister, so I knew this book wouldn't be garbage. But honestly, I was far from sold. I thought, you can tell the guy's rich. How can he know what I'm going through? To my surprise, Jack seemed like a real guy. He wasn't born rich, and he satisfied my cynical side by explaining in painstaking detail the process by which normal people could actually change their lives. I read the book every day, and even did the exercises Jack suggests. Then, on March 26, 2011, at 9.11 p.m., I had an aha moment, one that will stay with me forever. As I read the chapter, Decide What You Want, I realized that in the past, I would think up ways to make money, but rarely did I focus on what I enjoyed most and what I wanted to do. With great excitement, I began to create my list. 1. Exercise. 2. Kung Fu. 3. Ride my bike. 4. Teach self-defense. 
When I jotted down ten, encourage people, things suddenly clicked into place. I instantly knew what I wanted to do. Create and teach a self-defense system that would encourage and empower people. I even realized that I was uniquely suited to help others in this very specific way. For years, I'd been a serious martial artist, and some time ago, I'd started developing a self-defense program for women. But with my descent into alcoholism, the discipline and honor that is so vital to the martial artist had drained away along with my self-respect. In doing Jack's 20 Things exercise, I discovered that my martial arts experience, combined with my newfound energy and focus, made it possible for me to teach self-defense for a living. In fact, I was exceptionally qualified to stand up in front of a group of women and speak to them with authority and understanding. I had witnessed what happened to women on the street and in shelters. I'd seen how the strong prey on the weak. Without that experience, I'd just be an academic, someone who'd studied the martial arts but never applied them in real-life situations under duress and trauma. I realized that my unique experience, skills, and wants could all align in a single activity where I could actually make a living. It was like being struck by a thunderbolt. You can read more about Logan Dowdy's heartwarming journey at www.thesuccessprinciples.com forward slash stories. Six months after affirming his true wants, Logan left the rescue mission with a completely different perspective. No longer does he feel like a victim. Instead, he constantly looks for how the world will do him good. He treats others with compassion, tolerance, and patience. Armed with nothing but a bicycle, clothes, and the newfound knowledge that he could change his environment, Logan started a small but successful yard-cleaning business, and within months became the mission's senior self-defense instructor, teaching volunteers and staff how to deal with disruptive and potentially dangerous behavior at the facility. At the same time, he is fully developing and teaching his self-defense program full-time. As Logan puts it, I owe so much of this success to the success principles. Now I know who I am and where I'm going. And that can never be taken away. Principle 4. Believe it's possible. The number one problem that keeps people from winning in the United States today is lack of belief in themselves. Arthur L. Williams, founder of A. L. Williams Insurance Company, which was sold to Primerica for $90 million. Napoleon Hill, the author of Think and Grow Rich, once said, Whatever the mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. In fact, the mind is such a powerful instrument, it can deliver to you literally everything you want. But you first have to believe that what you want is possible. And belief is a choice. It is simply a thought you choose to think over and over until it becomes automatic. You get what you expect. Scientists used to believe that humans responded to information flowing into the brain from the outside world. But today, they're learning instead that we respond to what the brain, on the basis of previous experience, expects to happen next. Doctors in Texas, for example, studying the effect of arthroscopic knee surgery, assigned patients with sore, worn-out knees to one of three surgical procedures, scraping out the knee joint, washing out the joint, or doing nothing. 
Researchers at Baylor College of Medicine, for example, recently studied the outcome of arthroscopic knee surgery on patients with painful, worn-out knees who were given one of two types of arthroscopic surgery, either scraping out the knee joint or washing it out. Their results, when then compared to patients who had unknowingly received a pretend surgery, where doctors made tiny incisions in the knee as if to insert their surgical instruments, then did nothing. Two years later, patients who underwent the pretend surgery reported equal improvement in pain relief and knee function as those patients who had received an actual surgery. The brain expected the imaginary surgery to improve the knee, and it did. This is known as the placebo effect. Why does the brain work this way? Neuropsychologists who study expectancy theory say it's because we spend our whole lives becoming conditioned. Through a lifetime's worth of events, our brain actually learns what to expect next, whether it eventually happens that way or not. And because our brain expects something will happen a certain way, we often achieve exactly what we anticipate. This is why it's so important to hold positive expectations in your mind. When you replace your old negative expectations with more positive ones, when you begin to believe that what you want is possible, your brain will actually take over the job of accomplishing that possibility for you. Better than that, your brain will actually expect to achieve that outcome. You gotta believe. You can be anything you want to be, if only you believe with sufficient conviction and act in accordance with your faith. For whatever the mind can conceive and believe, the mind can achieve. Napoleon Hill best-selling author of Think and Grow Rich. When Philadelphia Phillies pitcher Tug McGraw, father of legendary country singer Tim McGraw, struck out batter Willie Wilson to earn the Phillies the 1980 World Series title, Sports Illustrated captured an immortal image of elation on the pitcher's mound, an image few people knew was played out exactly as McGraw had planned it. When I had the opportunity to meet Tug one afternoon in New York, I asked him about his experience on the mound that day. It was as if I'd been there a thousand times before, he said. When I was growing up, I would pitch to my father in the backyard. We would always get to where it was the bottom of the ninth in the World Series with two outs and three men on base. I would always bear down and strike them out. Because Tug had conditioned his brain day after day in the backyard, the day eventually arrived where he was living that dream for real. McGraw's reputation as a positive thinker had begun seven years earlier, during the New York Mets' 1973 National League Championship season, when Tug coined the phrase, You Gotta Believe, during one of the team's meetings. That Mets team, in last place in the division in August, went on to win the National League pennant and reach Game 7 of the World Series— where they finally succumbed to the Oakland A's. Another example of his always optimistic, you-gotta-believe attitude was the time, while he was a spokesman for the Little League, that he said, Kids should practice autographing baseballs. This is a skill that's often overlooked in Little League. And then he smiled his infectious smile. Believe in yourself and go for it. Sooner or later, those who win, are those who think they can. Richard Bach, best-selling author of Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Tim Ferriss, the author of The 4-Hour Workweek, 
believed in himself. In fact, he believed so strongly in his abilities that he won the national San Shao kickboxing title just six weeks after being introduced to the sport. As a prior All-American and Judo team captain at Princeton, Tim had always dreamed of winning a national title. He had worked hard. He was good at his sport. But repeated injuries over multiple seasons had continually denied him his dream. So when a friend called one day to invite Tim to watch him in the National Chinese Kickboxing Championship six weeks away, Tim instantly decided to join him in the competition. Because Tim had never been in any kind of striking competition before, he called USA Boxing and asked where the best trainers could be found. He traveled to a tough neighborhood in Trenton, New Jersey, to learn from boxing coaches who had trained gold medalists. And after four grueling hours a day in the ring, he put in more time conditioning in the weight room. To make up for his lack of time in the sport, Tim's trainers focused on exploiting his strengths instead of making up for his weaknesses. Tim didn't want to merely compete. He wanted to win. When the competition day at last arrived, Tim defeated three highly acclaimed opponents before making it to the finals. As he anticipated what he would have to do to win in the final match, he closed his eyes and visualized defeating his opponent in the very first round. Later, Tim told me that most people fail not because they lack the skills or aptitude to reach their goal, but because they simply don't believe they can reach it. Tim believed, and he won. Believe, even when you don't know how the requirements will be met. Jason McDougall believed it was possible. As a wholesaler who was shipping goods to the historic Canadian department store chain Fields, his gut told him something was wrong at the retail giant. Wondering if the chain might be for sale, Jason cold-called the head of the company and asked him to dinner, never doubting the general manager would say yes. When the dinner conversation eventually turned to the question of a buyout, the general manager replied, If ever there was a time to buy, it would be now. What followed was ninety days of frantic activity for Jason, putting the deal together and coming up with the cash. For Jason and his small company, the transaction was like a minnow swallowing a whale. Not only was the retail chain thirty times the size of Jason's business, but Jason also had no idea where the money would come from. His biggest bank loan up to that point had been just $5,000. Yet still he believed, with utter conviction, that he would eventually own Fields' stores. Even when the first non-refundable deposit was due, $150,000 that Jason didn't have, his unwavering belief led him to attend a Thursday night business function where an old friend offered to give Jason the cash by Friday morning's deadline. At another stage, Jason found himself $400,000 short in making a $1 million deposit, with a deadline that was just two hours away. Using his internal guidance and steadfast belief, Jason came up with the money just minutes before the deadline passed. And just 25 days later, when another $12 million was due, Jason miraculously assembled two banks and six private investors, one of whom rushed through the paperwork in order to meet the funding deadline. At each stage of the transaction, as larger and larger non-refundable deposits were due, Jason had absolute faith that the deal would happen. It had to. In fact, it was either bring in the cash or lose not only the deal, but also all the money he'd paid up to that point. 
How did Jason maintain his unwavering belief in the face of incredible odds? He followed his own guiding philosophy that, if a thing is supposed to happen, it will. If God had put him on this path, he said, the transaction was meant to be. Of course, the fact that each deadline was met through remarkable and serendipitous means only galvanized Jason's belief that this deal was destined to close. Each small success along the way made him believe even more that victory was on the horizon. By the time the transaction was eventually completed six months later, Jason had raised tens of millions of dollars, bought an established company that was an institution in Canada, saved hundreds of jobs, and created a sizable new business for himself. All because he believed it was possible. You must find a place in yourself where nothing is impossible. Deepak Chopra, author of The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success It's not what you don't know that holds you back. It's what you do know that isn't true. In 1983, a 61-year-old scrawny and socially awkward potato farmer named Cliff Young entered the Sydney to Melbourne Ultra Marathon, which was considered one of the world's most difficult physical challenges. 544 miles, 875 kilometers, of flats and hills that would take six or seven days to complete. The runners were allowed to eat and sleep as they chose, and the winner would win $10,000. When Cliff showed up in overalls and rain boots, the other runners, who were much younger and dressed in the latest Nike, Reebok, and Adidas running gear, made fun of him. The race officials were worried that Cliff might die of a heart attack but Cliff assured them that he had grown up on a farm where they couldn't afford horses or four-wheel drives, and that whenever a storm was coming in, he'd often run for two or three days without sleep in order to round up his family's 2,000 sheep on their 2,000-acre ranch. When the race started, all the other runners took off at a high speed, leaving Cliff in the dust. Cliff, however, started with a slow, loping pace and style that would later come to become known as the Cliff Young Shuffle. Now the race officials were sure Cliff would collapse and die somewhere along the route. But Cliff had a secret that no one knew about, including him. You see, Cliff had never met another long-distance runner before. He had never talked to a coach. He had never read Runner's World magazine or a book on long-distance running. He therefore didn't know you were supposed to sleep for six or seven hours a night during a long-distance endurance race. That first night, Cliff slept for only two hours. By running while the others slept, he took the lead the first night and maintained it for the remainder of the race. The next day, he ran nonstop for 23 hours, pausing to sleep for only one hour. Running with virtually no sleep for the entire race, Cliff crossed the finish line ten hours ahead of the next finisher. He had covered 544 miles in five days, 15 hours and four minutes the equivalent of almost four marathons a day, shattering the previous race record by more than two days. Cliff's story illustrates that sometimes it isn't what you don't know that stops your success. It's what you do know that isn't true. It is wise to question all of your assumptions about how things are done and be open to new possibilities. Principle 5 Believe in yourself. You weren't an accident. You weren't mass-produced. 
you aren't an assembly line product. You were deliberately planned, specifically gifted, and lovingly positioned on the earth by the master craftsman. Max Lucado, best-selling author. If you're going to be successful in creating the life of your dreams, you have to believe that you are capable of making it happen. You have to believe you have the right stuff, that you are able to pull it off. You have to believe in yourself, whether you call it self-esteem, self-confidence, or self-assurance. It is a deep-seated belief that you have what it takes, the abilities, inner resources, talents, and skills to create your desired results. Believing in yourself is an attitude. Believing in yourself is a choice. It is an attitude you develop over time. Although it helps if you had positive and supportive parents, the fact is that most of us had run-of-the-mill parents who inadvertently passed on to us the same limiting beliefs and negative conditioning they grew up with. But remember, the past is the past. There is no useful payoff for blaming them for your current level of self-confidence. It's now your responsibility to take charge of your own self-concept and your beliefs. You must choose to believe that you can do anything you set your mind to, anything at all, because, in fact, you can. It might help you to know that the latest brain research now indicates that with enough positive self-talk and positive visualization combined with the proper training, coaching, and practice, anyone can learn to do almost anything. Of the hundreds of super-successful people I have interviewed for this and other books, almost every one of them told me, I was not the most gifted or talented person in my field, but I chose to believe anything was possible. I studied, practiced, and worked harder than the others, and that's how I got to where I am. If a twenty-year-old Texan can take up the luge and become an Olympic athlete, a college dropout can become a billionaire, and a dyslexic student who failed three grades can become a best-selling author and television producer, then you, too, can accomplish anything if you will simply believe it is possible. If you assume in favor of yourself and act as if it is possible, then you will do the things that are necessary to bring about the result. If you believe it is impossible, you will not do what is necessary, and you will not produce the result. Either way, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The choice of what to believe is up to you. Consider the case of Viktor Serebryakov, the son of a Russian emigre who grew up in a London slum. Believing that he had no chance of ever finishing school or finding meaningful employment, Victor's teachers labeled him a dunce and told him he should drop out of school. Succumbing to the destiny that others had prescribed for him, Victor dropped out of school when he was fifteen and became an itinerant worker, moving from one dead-end job to another, often living on the streets with no aspirations other than merely surviving. When he was thirty-two, Victor joined the British Army, which gave him an intelligence test that revealed he was mentally gifted with an IQ of 161. He was a genius. Astonished by the results, Victor nevertheless decided to believe them. Once he learned that he was a genius, he decided to act like a genius. While he was in the Army, he got assigned to the Education Corps to train recruits. When he left the Army, he got a job at a timber company and eventually became the manager of a group of woodworking factories. He also became a highly respected timber technologist, 
and revolutionized the timber industry by inventing a machine for grading timber and by introducing the metric system to the trade. He later became the chairman of a National Timber Standards Commission and held several valuable sawmill-related patents. One day his wife, Mary, spotted an advertisement for a society that was looking for people of high intelligence. Victor took the entrance test for Mensa and easily surpassed the group's only requirement for membership, an IQ of 140 or more. Again, he scored 161, putting him in the exceptionally gifted category. Several years later, this former dropout was elected chairman of Mensa International. So what made the difference in Victor's life? It wasn't that he suddenly became smart. The truth is that he was smart all along. The intellectual potential was always there. What changed was the way he chose to see himself. When he was fifteen, he chose to believe his teachers, who saw him as stupid. When he was thirty-two, he chose to believe the Army's IQ test that said he was a genius, and he released the innate potential that had always been there. Victor's story is an awesome demonstration of the power of choosing to believe in yourself and your capabilities. What potential is lying dormant in you that could be released if you just chose to believe in yourself and your abilities? I am looking for a lot of men who have an infinite capacity to not know what can't be done. Henry Ford, founder and CEO of the Ford Motor Company. You have to give up. I can't. The phrase, I can't, is the most powerful force of negation in the human psyche. Paul R. Sheely, co-founder, Learning Strategies Corporation. If you are going to be successful, you need to give up the phrase, I can't, and all of its cousins, such as, I wish I were able to. The words, I can't, actually disempower you. They actually make you weaker when you say them. In my seminars, I use a technique called applied kinesiology to test people's muscle strength as they say different phrases. I have them put their left arm out to their side, and I push down on it with my left hand to see what their normal strength is. Then I have them choose something they think they can't do, such as, I can't play the piano, and say it out loud. I then push down on their arm again. It is always weaker. Then I have them say, I can do it. I can play the piano, and their arm is stronger. Your brain is designed to solve any problem and reach any goal that you give it. The words you think and say actually affect your body. We see this in toddlers, for example. When you were a toddler, there was no stopping you. You thought you could climb up on anything. No barrier was too big for you to attempt to overcome. But little by little, your sense of invincibility was conditioned out of you by the emotional and physical abuse that you received from your family, friends, and teachers, and by the decisions you made in response to that until you no longer believe you can. You must take responsibility for removing I can't from your vocabulary. I once attended a Tony Robbins seminar in which we learned to walk on burning coals. When we began, we were all afraid that we would not be able to do it, that we would burn the soles of our feet. As part of the seminar, Tony had us write down every other I can't that we had. I can't find the perfect job. I can't be a millionaire. I can't find the perfect mate. And then we threw them onto the burning coals and watched them go up in flames. Two hours later, 
Three hundred and fifty of us walked on the burning coals without anybody getting burned. That night we all learned that just like the belief that we couldn't walk on burning coals without getting burned was a lie, every other limiting belief about our abilities was also a lie. When George Danzig was a graduate student in mathematics at UC Berkeley, he arrived late for a graduate-level statistics class and found two problems written on the blackboard that he assumed had been assigned for homework, so he wrote them down. Not knowing that they had been written on the board as two examples of famous unsolvable statistics problems, he set out to solve them. Danzig would later recount that the problems seemed to be a little harder than usual, but a few days after he copied them down, he handed in the completed solutions for the problems, still believing they were part of an assignment that was overdue. Danzig said, If I had known that the problems were not homework, but were in fact two famous unsolved problems in statistics, I probably would not have thought positively, would have become discouraged, and would never have solved them. Danzig's story is a wonderful example of how, when you pursue your goals without any limiting beliefs about what you can accomplish, you can create unexpected and extraordinary results. Don't waste years believing you can't. On the other hand, there is the story of Catherine Lanigan. All through her childhood and teens, she was considered a gifted writer. In college, she entered the School of Journalism. During the second semester of her freshman year, she was recommended for a creative writing seminar, usually reserved for seniors, to be taught by a visiting professor from Harvard. When she wrote her first short story, the professor called her into his office to discuss her story. He was the quintessential English professor, horned-rimmed glasses, tweed coat, six foot six. He said, Come in, Miss Lanigan, sit down. He took her manuscript, threw it across his desk, and said, Frankly, Miss Lanigan, your writing stinks. She was devastated. He said, I have no idea how you got into my class. You have no concept of plot structure or characterization. There is no way you'll ever make a dime as a writer. But you are a fortunate young woman, because I have caught you at the crossroads of your life. Your parents are spending all their money on your education, and you need to change your major. Because it was too late in the semester for her to drop the course, he said, I know you're coming to the class with a 4.0, and I know you have declared your bid to graduate summa cum laude with highest honors. I'll make a bargain with you. I'll get you through the class, and I'll give you a B if you promise never to write again. Not seeing another choice, she took the bargain. Later that night, she took her short story and a metal waste can, went to the top of her dorm, burned the manuscript, and declared to the winter night sky, I vow I will never believe in dreams. I will deal only with reality. She then changed her major to education. For fourteen years, Catherine didn't write. But one summer, when she was in San Antonio, she noticed a group of writers and journalists sitting around one of the tables by the pool of her hotel. Summoning up her courage, she walked over to them and said, I want you to know that I really admire what you do as journalists, seeking out news stories. My secret dream was to be a writer. One of the older guys turned around and said, Is that right? Because if you wanted to be a writer, you would be a writer. Catherine replied, I have it on good authority that I have no talent whatsoever. He asked who told her that, and she told him the story of the professor. 
He gave her his card and told her to call him if she did any writing. She said she wasn't going to write, to which he replied, Oh, yes, you are. She thought about it, went home, wrote a book, and sent it to him. Three months later, he called and said that he liked it and had sent it to his agent, who would call in a half hour. The agent did call and said, Catherine, you are startlingly talented. Catherine signed a contract with the agency and within three weeks had two publishing companies bidding on the book. Since then, Catherine has published 33 books, including Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile, both of which were made into blockbuster movies starring Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. Think about this for a moment. Catherine lost the first 14 years of what was to become a lucrative and creative writing career because she believed the professor who told her she couldn't write. Don't ever let someone else tell you what you are not capable of. With training, determination, and hard work, you can eventually do anything you set your mind to. Remember, your beliefs are a choice. So make the choice to believe in yourself no matter what anyone else says. It's never too late. It's never too late. Never too late to start over. Never too late to be happy. Jane Fonda, Academy Award-winning actress and fitness guru. One of the most common excuses people use to avoid the risk of going for their dreams is, I'm too old. It's too late for me. I didn't start soon enough. Well, it's not true. Consider this. Julia Child, one of the most famous chefs in history, didn't even learn to cook until she was almost 40, and didn't launch The French Chef, the popular television show that would make her a household name, until she was 51. Susan Boyle was an unknown 48-year-old amateur when in the spring of 2009 she skyrocketed onto the international stage by belting out I Dreamed a Dream from Les Miserables on Britain's Got Talent. Since then, she has recorded five albums which have sold over 19 million copies, received two Grammy nominations, and amassed an estimated net worth of more than 22 million pounds, 37 million U.S. dollars. Ray Kroc was 52 after spending 17 years of his adult life as a paper cup salesman and approximately another 17 peddling a machine that could make five milkshakes at once— when he met the McDonald brothers, who owned a few great hamburger restaurants in California, and convinced them to let him help them franchise their operation on a national scale. Seven years later, Ray convinced them to sell out their shares and went on to become a billionaire. Elizabeth Jolly had her first novel published at the age of 56. In one year alone, she received 39 rejection letters— but she finally had 15 novels and four short story collections published to great success. Doris Haddock was 89 in 1999 when she began walking the 3,200 miles, 5,150 kilometers, between Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., to raise awareness for the issue of campaign finance reform. Granny D., as she became known, walked 10 miles a day on her journey relying on the kindness of strangers for her housing and meals over the 14 months that her walk took. In 2004, at the age of 94, she even made a bid for a seat in the U.S. Senate, making her one of the oldest candidates ever to run for a major public office. Anna Mary Robertson Moses, 
better known to the world as Grandma Moses, is one of the biggest names in American folk art, yet she didn't even pick up a brush until she was 76. She painted for another 25 years, which was long enough to allow her to see the canvases she had originally sold for $3 sell for more than $10,000. Today, some of her paintings sell at auction for more than $100,000. In 2007, 95-year-old Nola Oakes graduated from Fort Hay State University in Kansas with a degree in history, making her the oldest person to graduate with a college degree, breaking the record according to Guinness World Records, which had previously belonged to Moselle Richardson, who received a journalism degree from the University of Oklahoma at age 90 in 2004. Three years later, Nola went on to receive her master's degree, making her the oldest recipient of a master's degree at 98. On her hundredth birthday, Nola started writing her first book, Nola Remembers. And then, as if there was some kind of new competition, in 2011, Leo Plass graduated at 99 years old with an associate's degree from Eastern Oregon University, setting a world record for the oldest man to get a college degree. It's clear that it's never too late to do anything. From nursing shoes to running shoes. When Helen Klein was 55 years old, her husband, Norm, came to her and asked her to train with him for a 10-mile run. She had been smoking for 25 years and had never run a mile in her life, but she agreed to try it out. However, panting and exhausted after running two laps on a track they had marked off in their backyard, she wasn't so sure. But she decided to continue, and each day she ran one lap farther. Ten weeks later, she finished last, but she completed the ten-mile race. Spurred on by this success, Helen entered other short races, but realized she was not blessed with amazing speed, so she decided to try longer, slower marathons. Since then, she has run more than sixty marathons and one hundred and forty ultramarathons. Here are a few highlights from Helen's remarkable achievements. At age 66, she ran five 100-mile mountain trail events within 16 weeks. In 1991, she ran across the state of Colorado in five days and ten hours, setting the world record for the 500K. She also holds a world age group record in the 100-mile run. In 1995, at age 72, Helen ran 145 miles across the Sahara, and also completed the 370-mile Eco Challenge, in which she rode 36 miles on horseback, hiked 90 miles through broiling desert heat, negotiated 18 miles through freezing water-filled canyons, mountain-biked 30 miles, rappelled down a 440-foot cliff, climbed 1,200 feet straight up, paddled 90 miles on a river raft, hiked another 20 miles, and finally canoed 50 miles to the finish line. She also holds the world marathon record for the 80- to 85-year-old class, completing the 26.2-mile run in 4 hours and 31 minutes. Remember that Helen had never run before the age of 55. Her story is proof that it really is never too late to start. You're never too young to start. On the flip side of the coin, many people stop themselves by telling themselves they're too young to start. 
or that they don't have enough experience yet to pursue their dreams. That is also a false notion. Consider this. When I was speaking at the California Women's Conference, I met 12-year-old Ryan Ross, whom the media had dubbed Tiny Trump. When he was three years old, he started a chicken and egg business in his backyard. He had 60 chickens and sold a dozen eggs for $3. He was making $15 a day. When he got tired of selling eggs, he started his next venture, a lawn mowing business. He charged his customers $20 an hour, but because he was too young to operate a lawnmower, he paid older kids to do the work for $15 an hour, giving him a $5 an hour profit. His next business was a power washing business for which he charged $200 an hour and paid someone $100 an hour to do the work. At the age of five, Ryan was already investing his profits in buying real estate in his hometown of Toronto, Ontario, and in British Columbia. By the time he was eight, he owned six buildings and had a personal net worth of a million dollars. Ryan also engages in philanthropy that feeds and clothes families in third-world countries. He told me he was having lunch with the real Donald Trump the following week. When Alec Greven was nine years old, HarperCollins published his first book, How to Talk to Girls, which started out as a project for school. In the year after it came out, he appeared on The Ellen DeGeneres Show, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, and The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Within the first three months, the book made it onto the New York Times bestsellers list. A year later, he published three more books, How to Talk to Moms, How to Talk to Dads, and How to Talk to Santa. A year after that, at roughly 11 years old, he published Rules for School. His books are now available in 17 countries. And then there's the story of Ryan Hurljack. When he was six years old, he was shocked to learn that children in Africa had to walk many miles every day just to fetch water. So Ryan decided he needed to build a well for a village in Africa. By doing household chores and speaking at churches and schools on clean water issues, Ryan was able to raise enough money to get his first well built in northern Uganda by the time he was eight. Ryan's determination led to his founding the Ryan's Well Foundation which has raised millions of dollars and has completed 878 water projects and 1,120 latrines in 16 countries, bringing access to clean water and sanitation to more than 823,000 people. Currently, 23-year-old Ryan just completed his studies in international development and political science at University of King's College in Halifax on the east coast of Canada and still remains active with the Foundation as speaker and a board member. And when Jalen Bledsoe was just 13 years old, he started his own tech company, Bledsoe Technologies, specializing in web design and other IT services. In two years, he grew the company from just two employees to 150 contracted workers and expanded it into a global enterprise now worth $3.5 million. There are very few adults who can say they grew their business into a multi-million dollar business in just two years. By the age of 12, Brianna and Brittany Winner had completed their first novel, The Strand Prophecy, which was distributed nationally through Barnes & Noble. By the end of the 10th grade, these identical twins had completed four novels, a screenplay, a guide to writing, and a comic book. And get this. 
They are both dyslexic. Don't assume you need a college degree. Here's another statistic showing that belief in yourself is more important than knowledge, training, or schooling. 20% of America's millionaires never set foot in college, and 16 of the 492 Americans listed as billionaires in 2014 never got their college diplomas. Two never even finished high school. So although education and a commitment to lifelong learning are essential to success, a formal degree isn't a requirement. This is true even in the high-tech world of the Internet. Larry Ellison, CEO of Oracle, dropped out of the University of Illinois and at the time of this writing was worth $48 billion. Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard after founding Facebook and now has a net worth of $28 billion. And Bill Gates dropped out of Harvard and later founded Microsoft. Today, he is considered by Forbes to be one of the richest men in the world, with a net worth of more than $76 billion. Even Vice President Dick Cheney dropped out of college. So when you realize that a former vice president, several of the richest men in America, and many $20 million a movie actors, as well as many of our greatest musicians and athletes, are all college dropouts, it's clear that you can start from anywhere and create a successful life for yourself. What others think about you is none of your business. You have to believe in yourself when no one else does. That's what makes you a winner. Venus Williams, Olympic gold medalist and professional tennis champion. If having others believe in you and your dream was a requirement for success, most of us would never accomplish anything. You need to base your decisions about what you want to do on your goals and desires, not the goals, desires, opinions, and judgments of your parents, friends, spouse, children, and co-workers. Quit worrying what other people think about you and follow your heart. I like Dr. Daniel Amen's 1840-60 rule. When you're 18, you worry about what everybody is thinking of you. When you're 40, you don't give a darn what anybody thinks of you. When you're 60, you realize nobody's been thinking about you at all. Surprise, surprise. Most of the time, nobody's thinking about you at all. They're too busy worrying about their own lives. And if they are thinking about you at all, they're wondering what you are thinking about them. Meanwhile, all that time you are wasting worrying about what other people think about your ideas, your goals, your clothes, your hair, and your home, could all be better spent focusing on doing the things that will achieve your goals. Principle 6. Use the Law of Attraction. What you radiate outward in your thoughts, feelings, mental pictures, and words, you attract into your life. Catherine Ponder, author of The Dynamic Laws of Prosperity. One of the most powerful forces in the universe surrounds us, affects us, and can be used to positively impact our future. Like gravity, it is not something we can turn on or off. It just is. And like gravity, we can choose to fight it, complain about it, or harness its tremendous benefits, just as successful people do. I'm talking about the law of attraction. For centuries, most people didn't know it existed, until in 2006, a documentary film and book called The Secret 
was released that featured me and many of my colleagues as teachers of this powerful law. I've consciously used the law of attraction to create personal success and business milestones throughout my life. And interestingly, the key practices for harnessing its power are many of the same principles and practices you're reading about in this book, The Success Principles. Behaviors like taking 100% responsibility for the outcomes in your life, believing it's possible, visualizing your desired results, creating a vision board, repeating affirmations, acting as if, maintaining a positive expectancy, practicing forgiveness, meditating, practicing uncommon appreciation, and developing a positive money consciousness. Since The Secret and the Law of Attraction have become so much a part of our culture. Let's take a few moments to discover what it is, how it works, and most important, how you can use it to create the life and results you want. Stated in its most basic form, the Law of Attraction says, What you think about, talk about, believe strongly about, and feel intensely about, you will bring about. Throughout history, the greatest minds and spiritual teachers have been pointing us to this truth. Consider the following. What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Mark 11.24, King James Version of the Bible. All that we are is a result of what we have thought. Buddha. A man is but the product of his thoughts. What he thinks he becomes. Gandhi. The empires of the future are the empires of the mind. Winston Churchill We become what we think about all day long. Ralph Waldo Emerson Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life, and you will call it fate. Carl Jung These great thinkers knew the power that our thoughts have over our lives, from impacting what we have to creating everything we experience even to determining our place in the world. How can mere thoughts control so many aspects of our life? Because our thoughts are made up of energy, they can impact our physical world. Today, scientists know that everything found in the universe is made up of energy. This goes for both physical and non-physical objects. Of course, basic chemistry tells us that a physical object, such as a building, a tree, or this book, is made up of billions of individual atoms, little energy bundles that interact and bond with other atoms into many forms including water, metals, plants, soil, plastics, wood pulp, and other raw materials used to manufacture physical objects. Non-physical things, including thoughts, are also made up of energy and, as such, can also bond and interact with aspects and objects of our physical world. It is well known, for instance, that our brain waves, literally our thoughts, are a form of intense energy that can be easily detected with standard medical equipment and that can interact with our physical world as any other form of energy would. What do I mean by interact with our physical world? Well, have you ever thought about a distant friend only to get a phone call from her moments later? Have you ever driven down a highway wondering whether you'll get a speeding ticket only to see flashing red lights in your rear-view mirror? That's your brain waves interacting with your physical reality. Luckily, it's possible to use your thoughts to stimulate positive outcomes, too. If you've ever desired something intensely for months, 
only to suddenly receive it through serendipitous means, or step into a situation where it was provided to you? That was also your thoughts, intention, and desire impacting your experience. The world as we have created it is a process of our thinking. It cannot be changed without changing our thinking. Albert Einstein, physicist and winner of the Nobel Prize. Albert Einstein studied this phenomenon in 1935 when he experimented with quantum mechanics, the idea that energetically activating a particle on one side of the universe created an instantaneous response in a partner particle elsewhere in the universe. Columbia University professor Brian Greene explains it this way, According to quantum theory and the many experiments that bear out its predictions, the quantum connection between two particles can persist even if they are on opposite sides of the universe. In other words, something that happens over here can be entwined with something that happens over there. Brian Greene is a professor of physics and mathematics at Columbia University. His book, The Fabric of the Cosmos, was the basis for a miniseries on PBS television's NOVA program. A number of other documented experiments have also proven that thoughts can rapidly travel through space and either be picked up by others or have an effect on matter. The book, Thoughts Through Space, recounts an experiment in 1937 by Arctic explorer Sir Hubert Wilkins and Harold Sherman, a student of mental powers who had long been interested in the phenomenon of mind-to-mind -mind communication. The experiment began when a group of Russian flyers crashed on a shelf of ice on the Alaskan side of the North Pole. The Russian government commissioned Sir Hubert Wilkins to organize and lead an aerial search in the region to find and rescue them, if they were still alive. While in New York prior to his departure, Sir Hubert met Harold Sherman and, seeing an unusual opportunity to put mind-to-mind -mind communication to a scientific test, they decided to collaborate on a six-month experiment. It was agreed that Wilkins, once his expedition was underway, would, as an experiment separate from his rescue mission, transmit thought messages at prearranged times directly to Sherman in New York. Both men would keep written records of each session, with Wilkins noting his thoughts as the sender and Sherman recording his mental impressions in his role as the receiver. Both written records were regularly given to third parties, so the results couldn't be altered later. When Wilkins returned to the United States at the end of his expedition and showed his diary of thought messages sent to Sherman, an amazing 80% of Sherman's readings were accurate, proving that thought messages were successfully sent and received across 3,400 miles. A more recent experiment conducted by astronaut Edgar Mitchell during the Apollo 14 mission in 1971 established that thoughts could travel at least 250,000 miles, the distance from the Earth to the Moon. While in outer space, Mitchell, who holds a doctorate degree in science, transmitted a telepathic message to four individuals on Earth. Three of them received the message correctly. According to the story, one of those to whom the message was transmitted was Olaf Jonsson, an engineer and a psychic, who was living in Chicago. At a prearranged time from inside his space capsule, Mitchell arranged a sequence of cards containing different symbols such as a cross, a star, a wave, a circle, and a square. And Jonsson tried to picture the unknown cards from 250,000 miles away.
Not only did Jonsson get all of the symbols correct, he also saw them in the correct order. Dozens of scientists have produced thousands of papers in the scientific literature offering sound evidence that thoughts are capable of profoundly affecting all aspects of our lives. As observers and creators, we are constantly remaking our world at every instant. Every thought we have, every judgment we hold, however unconscious, is having an effect. Lynn McTaggart, author of The Field, The Intention Experiment, and The Bond. Today, scientists have advanced to studying not just transmission of thoughts, but also bio-entanglement physics, discovering how to harness these energy connections to bring desired results into our physical reality. While the secret and the law of attraction have had their share of critics these past few years, I think humankind is just beginning to understand the power of thought and the theory of entanglement. Literally, that our mind is energetically entangled with the physical universe, and as such, can activate the universe to deliver whatever is on our mind. The law of attraction relies on the fact that everything is in a constant state of vibration. Another fact that's widely known by scientists is that the Earth, and everything on Earth, including you, is vibrating at a specific frequency that's unique to that object or person. From the smallest atomic particle to the largest skyscraper, everything ever created is in a constant state of vibration, literally, in energetic motion. Scientists also know that the Earth's vibrational frequency can fluctuate under intense energy, not only in areas of extreme weather, but also around worldwide events such as terrorist attacks, natural disasters, and other instances of extreme human emotion. It's not much of a stretch to realize that, through our own intense emotions, we too can raise, lower, or even match the vibrational frequencies of objects, situations, experiences, and people we want to attract into our existence. In fact, one of the main precepts of the Law of Attraction is that the level of vibrational frequency and the flow of energy is controlled by thought. Through your deliberate thoughts, you can bring yourself into vibrational harmony with, and attract, anything you desire. As best-selling author Lynn McTaggart writes, Where attention goes, energy flows. Where intention goes, energy flows. To learn more about the power of intention, read The Intention Experiment, Using Your Thoughts to Change Your Life and the World, by Lynn McTaggart. A major focus of The Secret is how to use the power of intention, that is, deliberate thought, to manifest what you want in life. It's a three-step process. Ask, believe, and receive. Step 1. Ask for what you want, not for what you don't want. Every day you send out requests to the universe, as well as to your subconscious mind, in the form of thoughts. Literally, what you think about, read about, talk about, and give your attention to. This includes the books and magazines you read, the television shows and movies you watch, the emails you answer, the websites you visit, the blogs you read, and the music you listen to. Unfortunately, much of this thought is random, contradictory, non-productive, and certainly not deliberate. It happens without our conscious awareness or intention. Even worse, we send negative requests to the universe when we criticize ourselves, 
complain about things and focus on the lack of abundance in our lives. Similarly, when you blame, find fault, or judge someone or something, you're also focusing on a negative experience that you don't want. The same is true when you worry. I often refer to worrying as negative goal-setting. You're creating pictures in your mind of what you don't want. Because the law of attraction states that you'll attract into your life whatever you give your energy, focus, and attention to, wanted or unwanted, you must become more deliberate about what you think and feel. The law of attraction also states that each thought or feeling you offer carries with it a vibrational frequency, to which the universe responds by giving you more of whatever you are vibrating. It doesn't care whether that request is good for you or not. It simply responds to your vibration. The problem is that, most of the time, you're not aware of the vibration you are offering. You are simply responding to things outside of yourself—current events, the news, how people treat you, the stock market, how much money you make, how your children are doing in school, and whether or not your team wins. You're responding by feeling positive or negative. Unfortunately, when you merely respond unconsciously to what is currently happening around you, never offering deliberate thought about what you want in your future, you can stay stuck in your current condition forever. This is why most people's lives never seem to change. They get stuck in a cycle of recreating the same reality over and over, because the universe faithfully responds to the negative vibration they are sending out. Compare that with offering positive thoughts instead. Feeling excited, enthusiastic, passionate, happy, joyful, loving, appreciative, abundant, prosperous, relaxed, and peaceful. These are thoughts that give off positive vibrations. By contrast, feeling bored, anxious, worried, confused, sad, lonely, hurt, angry, resentful, guilty, disappointed, frustrated, overwhelmed, stressed out, or depressed gives off negative vibrations. The law of attraction responds either way and brings you more of what you are vibrating. This is shocking to most people. To learn that the life they're living now is the result of the thoughts and vibrations they've offered in the past is revolutionary. Even more exciting is learning that to create the future of your dreams, you need only change your thoughts and vibrations from this day forward. How would you be feeling if you already had those things and lifestyle experiences you desire—the perfect job, the perfect relationship, world travel, the amount of money that you want to have? Start intentionally creating your future. To become more intentional about the thoughts you offer the universe, you'll need to decide what you want, but also practice feeling those emotions you'll experience when you have it. To help you decide what you want, see Principle 3. Decide what you want. To learn how to practice the emotional joy and satisfaction of having, being, and doing what you want, see Principle 12. Act as if. Perhaps you want to change careers, move to another state, win a major professional award, have your own TV show, or recover from a major illness. How would you feel once you've arrived at your goal? What would you be doing throughout your day? Who would you be spending time with? The more you focus on and talk about what you do want instead of what you don't want, the faster you will manifest your dreams and goals. Think of your mind as a GPS system, like the one on your smartphone or in your car. 
With every picture you visualize, you're inputting the destination you want to get to. Every time you express a preference for something, you are expressing an intention. A table by the window, front row seats at a conference, first-class tickets, a room with an ocean view, a loving relationship. These images and thoughts are all sending requests to the universe. Use words that focus the universe on what you want. Of course, how you state your goals is very important to this focusing process. Instead of saying, I want to get out of debt, which keeps your mind focused on the debt you have now, say, I am living a life of abundance and wealth. Words like these keep you in a positive state of thought. Be similarly careful when you talk with other people about your current situation. Talking about the way things are and describing what's going on in your current reality actually creates more of the same in your future. By thinking about and voicing opinions about your current situation, you're actually prescribing the future rather than simply describing the present. The difference between the two was dramatically brought home to me a few years ago when Mark Victor Hansen and I flew to New York to be inducted into the Ardith Rodale Hall of Fame in recognition for the positive impact of our Chicken Soup for the Soul books. On the flight to New York, I sat next to a man who spent the entire trip talking about how terrible the world was, the government, the economy, crime, corruption, pollution, how ungrateful and out-of-control teenagers were, and on and on. He was an unhappy man. But when Mark and I went out for a late dinner after the award ceremony, all we could talk about were all the wonderful things that were happening in our lives, our recent successes, the projects we were working on, how we could help each other, who we wanted to introduce each other to, the recent insights we were having, what we were grateful for, and all the other positives in our life. Having a positive outlook, using future-thinking language, and being in a state of expectancy about the good that's coming into your life is the best way to ask the universe to deliver the very things, people, and experiences you want. Replace negative images and thoughts with positive ones. In the same way that you can write the script for your exciting future life, you can prevent the things you don't want by keeping your mind off of them. Whenever you see things you don't want, Make a conscious decision not to think about them, write about them, talk about them, push against them, or join groups that focus on them. Whenever you catch yourself worrying or focusing on lack, quickly replace those negative thoughts with pictures, feelings, and emotions of you enjoying what you do want. This is intentional daydreaming, a great use of the power of visualization, something I discuss later in Principle 11. Whenever you slip into judging yourself or someone or something else, realize that you're focusing on what you don't want. Take action to shift your thinking. Civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King's greatest speech was not titled, I Have a Complaint. It was called, I Have a Dream. And when Mother Teresa was asked why she didn't participate in anti-war demonstrations, she said, I will never do that. But as soon as you have a pro-peace rally, I'll be there. These great leaders knew that to be against something, to focus on your opposition to it, just creates more of it. This is why meditation, mindfulness, and paying attention are so important. 
You will become more powerful in creating what you do want when you learn to focus your attention and monitor your thoughts. Replace negative thoughts that produce feelings of resignation, hopelessness, depression, guilt, fear, and anger with more positive thoughts that produce feelings of happiness, contentment, love, acceptance, hope, peace, and joy. Ask for what you want. Then let the universe worry about how you'll get it. As I mentioned in Principle 3, decide what you want. Your only job is to focus on what you want. Don't worry about how to get it. That's the universe's job, and, as we'll see, it's phenomenally good at aligning the people, situations, money, resources, and other things necessary to bring about your desired goals. Be more intentional by deciding exactly what you want. Focus your thoughts. They will attract to you the people, things, and experiences that match the content and vibration of your thoughts. Just like the GPS system I mentioned earlier, when you present your goals to the universe and its powerful technology, you will be surprised and dazzled by what it delivers. This is where the magic and miracles truly happen. It's the same for Christians and other people of faith who are willing to turn their dreams, fears, and desires over to God. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. Nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Step 2. Believe that you'll get what you want. Then take action. Our intentions attract the elements and forces, the events, the situation, the circumstances, and the relationships necessary to fulfill the intended outcome. We don't need to become involved in the details. In fact, trying too hard may backfire. Let the non-local intelligence synchronize the actions of the universe to fulfill your intentions for you. Deepak Chopra Physician, Speaker, and Author of The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success what does it mean to believe you'll get what you want? It means maintaining a positive expectancy, going about your day with certainty, knowing that you've put your future in the hands of powers that are greater than yours. It's deciding with conviction that what you want will absolutely happen. This is not always easy. Many people have limiting beliefs which keep them from allowing abundance and happiness into their lives. If this describes you, Realize that you must first change your limiting beliefs into thoughts that you are deserving, worthy, lovable, desirable, and capable, as well as smart enough, strong enough, attractive enough, rich enough, good enough, and enough in every other way that matters to you. I've written a simple strategy in Principle 33. Transcend your limiting beliefs to help you eliminate any beliefs that are holding you back, and if you need to turn your inner critic into an inner coach, see Principle 32 for ways to overcome negative thoughts that can block the positive expectancy that is so critical to the law of attraction at work. Of course, once you believe that you'll get what you want, the second part of the equation is to take action. Taking the actions that would create your desired result affirms your belief that what you want is within reach. It adds to your expectation. Some of the actions you'll take are what I call obvious actions, 
like enrolling in biochemistry and anatomy classes in college if your goal is to become a doctor, or changing your diet if your goal is to lose weight. You don't need to wait for the universe to deliver a unique set of circumstances to you. It's obvious what you must do, and those opportunities are readily available to you. Then there are what I call inspired actions. These are actions you take when you receive inner guidance, an intuitive hit, a hunch, or a gut feeling. Like when you respond to a random thought such as, I don't know why, but I have this urge to call my college roommate. Or, I'm feeling the strong need to attend that conference. Many people during their visualization or meditation time keep paper and pencil nearby to capture these ideas. Most of the time, you won't see the whole plan. But with a strong enough belief, you can move forward and take action anyway, watching for other action steps to appear. She followed her inspiration. By thought, the thing you want is brought to you. By action, you receive it. Wallace T. Wattles, author of The Science of Getting Rich when Jeanette Ma was four months into her new job as a 401k sales rep for a large national bank, management announced that if the sales team didn't turn things around soon and create some impressive numbers fast, all of them would be out of jobs. Up until that time, they had followed very prescribed steps for making a sale. Make a certain number of cold calls each day, set up a certain number of meetings each week, and use a list of responses to potential objections. These were sales strategies that had been tried and proven many times for others, but it wasn't working for their team. And now the team was spending too much of its time discussing what was going wrong, whose fault it was, and why things weren't working. After learning their jobs were on the line if they didn't produce results in a hurry, Jeanette threw out her pipeline and script sheet and decided to try something else. She remembered hearing about a journal-writing technique in which, if you wrote a page a day about what you wanted, as if you already had it, by the time you got to the end of your book, you would have what you want. Jeanette didn't have a lot of time, so she pulled out the smallest book she could find, a two-inch by three-inch notebook about twenty-five pages long. It took all of two minutes to fill her first page. She wrote about how excited prospects were to talk with her, how they loved her product, and couldn't wait for her to implement it. She wrote about the instant excellent rapport she felt, and how the product she offered really was the perfect solution for their company. After making her first entry, she checked in with herself about what felt good to do next. The answer was lunch. She hadn't had a real lunch since her first week on the job. Her lunch hour since then had consisted of literally running down the hall to the vending machine. Then she would run back to her desk and eat her unhealthy fare between calls to business owners. On this day, however, she followed her inner guidance and decided on a better lunch. It felt truly luxurious to actually leave the building, sit in an outside table, and enjoy her favorite Greek food on a spring day. After she enjoyed a delicious meal, she kicked her feet up on the table and threw leftover pita bread to the sparrows nearby. When she was good and ready, she meandered back to the office. It was in the elevator, on the way back to her cubicle, that a stranger introduced himself to her and asked who she was. I'm Jeanette, and I sell small business 401ks for the bank. He couldn't believe his ears. He insisted she follow him to his office, 
which is where he showed her a desk littered with 401k sales literature from a variety of vendors. He said he hadn't been able to make heads or tails of any of it, and he had no idea her bank sold 401ks to small businesses. She shared her sales material. He was elated. It was exactly what he wanted. He asked how soon she could put this in place for his company. In a bit of a daze, she let him introduce her to his human resources director. He instructed his human resources director to sign whatever Jeanette needed as soon as possible. He wanted this plan in place immediately. Within two hours of her first entry in her journal, she was already experiencing amazing success. Her colleagues and manager were equally astounded. This never happened. Jeanette attributed the happy result to giving up the supposed-to actions that management had given them and instead doing what felt good. Know when to take inspired action. As the laws of attraction goes to work on your goals, you'll find that numerous ideas, strategies, and inspirations will come into your awareness. These might be flashes of insight that come up during visualization or meditation time. Sometimes the opportunity will appear in the form of an unexpected phone call or a new acquaintance who brings you details of a lucky break. At other times, it will be an unusual monetary transaction, rebate, or other financial boost that brings you the money you need to take the first step toward your goal. Yet again, it might be merely an impulse, an inspired idea, or a strategy that briefly comes to mind that you write down. I call these inspired ideas. They're not random ideas you'd like to try or strategies you think might work. They're approaches you've never considered before that could only have come to mind because of your use of the law of attraction. Whatever appears, your task is to recognize these opportunities for what they are, then act quickly while the associated energy is in your favor. It's not enough to simply think positive thoughts. When a chance appears, you must take action. When Janet Switzer wanted to sell her own book, Instant Income, shortly after the Success Principles was first released, she set the intention to land a publishing deal from a prominent New York publisher, then spent days writing an elaborate book proposal, knowing with certainty that an opportunity to take action would appear. Within two weeks, Janet got a call from the former chairman and CEO of Time Warner Book Group, who had recently retired and started his own literary agency. A friend had mentioned Janet's latest project to him, and he had called to discuss representing her. Because Janet was prepared with her book proposal, was clear about what she wanted, and recognized the lucky break for what it was, she took action and quickly signed on as one of the CEO's first clients. Within weeks, Janet was in New York meeting with America's biggest publishing houses and sold her book for a major advance just a few days later. In the beginning, as you start intentionally creating your future, it may seem like these inspirations and opportunities are swift to appear and overwhelming in number. You may not trust them all, and you'll probably feel like they're seriously impacting your to-do list. So how can you distinguish the truly inspired ideas, prioritize them, then accomplish all of them if you're supposed to take immediate action? How can you discern which actions are the most important and which can be left until later? One way is to use an exercise called somatic decision-making, sometimes referred to as the sway test. 
It's based on the idea that our bodies instinctively know what's right for us and can therefore help us decide by considering our different options. To start the process, stand with your feet together and your arms relaxed at your side. Close your eyes and simply ask your body, what is a yes answer? Wait until your body automatically leans forward or backward. Then ask your body, what is a no answer? If it leans in the opposite direction, you have successfully calibrated your body's answers. When you've determined which direction means yes for you and which way means no, you can begin to test the accuracy of the calibration by asking your body some standard questions that you already know the answer to, such as, Is my name Jack? Do I live in Dallas, Texas? Am I wearing a blue shirt? Once you have determined that you can trust the answers you are getting, you can begin to ask your body questions about the inspired ideas you've received. Should I bring on Jonathan as a partner in the business? Should I marry Doug? Should I buy the boat that Marcus called about today? Another way to discern between the many inspired ideas you receive is to simply see which ones keep coming up for you. When I first got the idea to form the Transformational Leadership Council, I didn't take action right away. In fact, it was months before I could take the necessary steps. But the idea kept popping into my head at odd moments, newly embellished with specific ideas about who to invite as members, what the organization's goals should be, where we would meet for annual meetings, and so on. I couldn't get those thoughts out of my head. The same thing happened with the first Chicken Soup for the Soul book. I got so many messages that I knew I simply had to take action on the idea. Step 3. Receive what you want by becoming a vibrational match for it. Remember I said that everything on earth vibrates at a specific frequency? In order to receive that which you are intending, you must become a vibrational match for what you want to attract into your life. You are like a radio station that is broadcasting on a specific frequency. If you want to listen to jazz, you have to tune your dial to a station that broadcasts jazz, not one that plays heavy metal. If you want more abundance and prosperity in your life, you have to tune the frequency of your thoughts and feelings to ones of abundance and prosperity. The easiest way to become a vibrational match is to focus on creating positive emotions of love, joy, appreciation, and gratitude throughout your day. You can also practice feeling the emotions you would be experiencing if you already had what you wanted. You can also create these emotions through the thoughts that you think. In fact, your thoughts are creating feelings all the time, so it's important to catch yourself when your emotions turn negative, striving to replace them with what the Law of Attraction authors Esther and Jerry Hicks call a better-feeling thought. For example, thinking you don't have enough money to pay your mortgage will create negative feelings of fear and hopelessness, even guilt and shame for not being able to provide for your family. Instead of giving energy to these negative thoughts, shift your thinking to positive ones such as, I will find a way, or by visualizing yourself easily paying the mortgage on time. At first, this process may seem foreign to you, but the truth is you can, over time, learn to choose only uplifting, inspiring, motivational, and empowering thoughts. It is simply a habit that, with intention and discipline, can be developed. Use affirmations to create a vibrational match. 
Another way to bring yourself into vibrational alignment with what you want is to use affirmations, something I discuss in great detail in Principle 10, Release the Brakes. An affirmation is a statement of your goal or desire, now realized in present time. They are statements you can write down, then repeat regularly to bombard your subconscious mind with the thoughts, images, and feelings you would be experiencing if your goal was already complete. Affirmations sound like this. I am so happy and grateful that I live in a 4,000-square-foot oceanfront home on Ka'anapali Beach. Or, I'm so happy and grateful that I am effortlessly depositing $10,000 a month into my bank account. When you use affirmations to visualize your goals as already complete, you keep yourself in that heightened state of joy that is required to maintain a vibrational match to what you want. Resentment that you don't have what you want, on the other hand, keeps you out of vibrational alignment. It's simply impossible to receive or allow what you want when you are bitter, blaming, judging, or feeling guilty. These feelings push away what you want. If the only prayer you ever say in your entire life is thank you, it would be enough. Meister Eckhart, German theologian and philosopher. Create a vibrational match through appreciation and gratitude. The two most powerful feelings for quickly manifesting your goals are appreciation and gratitude. Think about it. If you had whatever it is you are wanting, you would feel appreciation and gratitude for having received it. So not only is appreciation a great feeling to focus on, but gratitude is also a powerful mindset for attracting more of what you want. You can get into the habit of appreciation by making it a daily discipline. Set aside five to ten minutes a day to focus on appreciation. Make a list in your journal of all the things you are grateful for. That's how I first started. You can also practice appreciation and gratitude through meditation. Yet another technique is an exercise that Esther and Jerry Hicks call the Rampage of Appreciation where you simply look around you and gently notice something that pleases you. Hold your attention on it while you think about how wonderful, beautiful, or useful it is. If it's an item you own, appreciate the fact that it is already in your life. 